When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Yesterday, I had the good fortune and the opportunity to interview William Shatner. If there's a handful of words that William Shatner is probably best known for, it's space, the final frontier. Now, if you think about it, I think part of the reason those few words resonated so much with television audiences in the 60s and then again in the 80s is because it's true. Uh, We have explored a lot of the earth, right? And uh, you don't have that same sort of opportunity to discover something new on this planet, but you do in space. And over the last year and a half or so, we have been very lucky to have our very own space Sherpa planted firmly on the ground. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and what they call an edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. He's also a podcaster uh, for WABCradio.com where you can hear the Dr. Sky experience, which is just terrific. Steve, it is always a great treat to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me on the air. Well, good morning, Frank, and Happy New Year to you and the listeners. Hard to believe it's already 2023 as whatever we approach the 11th day of January. Good to be with you. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Hey, looking back on uh, 2022, and I'm always more interested in looking ahead, but I think it's important to look at what a groundbreaking year 2022 was. It was a, a pretty big year for space missions. Give us a little bit of a recap, if you can, about what the highlights in terms of space travel were in 2022. Well, it's a great question, and here we go. In 2022, there were 186 space launches around the globe. 60 missions were from SpaceX, and interestingly enough, 64 launches from China. And though that doesn't add up to the number I said before, there's been a lot of other nations that have had rocket launches, private companies that have also joined the you know, big foray into the low-Earth orbit and beyond. And, of course, the big highlights, I think, has to go if we were going to award a prize here on the other side of midnight – I think Frank would probably give the award naturally to the SpaceX. Don't forget about Jeff Bezos. Blue Origin also in the space tourism area is very strong. But if you think about what's really happening in this reflection of looking back into 2022, it is so amazing what SpaceX has accomplished and all the things that Elon Musk is trying to do. You know, obviously the center of a lot of controversy from how Tesla is going to move forward and improve their stock share how they're going to, of course, meet their deadlines with the electric cars, the acquisition of Twitter, 
So if you look at that, I mean, he's really done a yeoman job, I think, by many people's estimations. But in my personal opinion, if I could say to Elon, I'd say, hey, Elon, why don't you pick one of those things and try to concentrate on it more? But I would kind of opt for space, don't you think? Well, I mean, I would, but I would think that um, he there's a lot more money to be made in the short term oh, uh, with right. respect to running Tesla and maybe a lot more influence to be had on sure. this planet uh, with uh, with running Twitter. But, uh, but we'll see. Look, uh, clearly Elon Musk is doing okay. I don't know that he needs advice from us. Uh, in terms of uh, how he should be spending his time and uh, where his productivity should be centered. Um, what are we in store for this year? What's kind of the next thing that we can be looking forward to and the thing after that? What do the next 12 months look like space-wise for us? Well, we have some very interesting launches. And again, we're going to center the most of this conversation on talking about what uh, Elon Musk is doing with SpaceX. We're looking to see the first iteration of this most massive rocket that he's developing for his starship, and that particular rocket is even larger and more powerful than what he has with the big heavy lift rocket that we've seen launched and very successful. So we're going to see so many different individual missions. NASA has a whole bunch of missions, too, that they're looking to accomplish. And if we look at the exploration of the solar system, there's going to be an interesting mission that hopefully will get off the ground this particular year in 2023. That is the Psyche Asteroid Rendezvous Mission. Why is that so important? It's because this particular asteroid, Psyche, is thought not to just be a rock, you know, rubble pile, but, Frank, it's thought to actually be maybe the core of a previous planetary object or one that never made it. So it's simply, it's mostly made of metallic material like nickel iron, and that will be a very interesting probe and a very interesting mission as we move into this new year. But there's going to be, I think if we look at 2023, and let's keep our fingers crossed, it's probably also going to be the year of lunar rovers. Now, we're not talking about these big, massive rovers like the ones that maybe take seven or so astronauts to the surface of the moon. That's coming. But there's a lot of these little objects that we describe in space. We talk about these little tiny satellites called CubeSats, maybe small as or smaller than a microwave oven. Some of them are a little larger than that, that will actually be exploring the surface of the moon, both from the NASA side, the privatized area of space and companies that are trying to do that, and there's going to be a lot of competition to get down to the surface of the moon and also to explore, maybe even scoop up some material like water ice on the surface of the moon. Most of this is scheduled to be kind of a headway, you know, leading the way for astronauts to look at the area that they're probably going to land the humans on. And that is the Aiken Basin in the southern pole of the moon. Very fascinating. So much more to talk about. And we could go into more detail. But of course... That's pretty much a simple highlight of uh, 2023. It's exciting. It, obviously, we've covered at length the escalating tensions between the United States and Russia over the last 11 months and what that has meant or what will what it might mean, I should say, for the future of U.S.-Russian uh, cooperation for things like the uh, International Space Station. China seems to be a country that has a lot of spacefaring ambitions, and it's also a country where tensions seem to be worsening with the United States. Uh, yes. You'd mentioned the private sector space flights, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, mm -hmm. Richard Branson. But in terms of governmental space flights and the prospects of international cooperation, who, if anyone, is the United States uh, poised to partner with in terms of space exploration? And what countries might be partnering with one another on that front? Well, it's interesting, Frank. If you look at now the most populated nation on the earth, it's not China, it's India. Mm. We're probably going to be working very closely with them 
not only on the propulsion side, but also on the individual space, you know, projects, as I mentioned before, like the Psyche mission, it may not be 100% a NASA mission. European Space Agency is very big, and that's a conglomerate of countries over in Europe, naturally, that are also there to, you know, explore the entire inner solar system and beyond. So we have a lot of space missions. But again, going back to something I find fascinating, there's a country called Astrobiotics, and they're going to be responsible for a little mission called the Peregrine One Lander. And this is hopefully going to get off in 2023. It may even scoop up some material from the surface of the moon, maybe bring it back to Earth. We're not too sure on that. But a lot of these countries, uh, obviously out there, that have never had an opportunity to get to space, just the other day, if not, what, 24 hours ago, or even this previous, uh, maybe hours ago, it's been reported by many of the news sources around the world, Virgin Orbit had their first actual launch from the U.K. in the spaceport called Cornwall. So we see the United Kingdom getting very heavily into this. And this particular mission was known as what we call Start Me Up, taking after the 1981 Rolling Stones song mm. as their mission, as the main mission you know, theme, Start Me Up. But that's even more interesting because what they're doing, Virgin Galactic and the whole Virgin team uh, with Branson, Richard Branson, is that they have this amazing 747, of course, many of the airplanes that he flew in the Virgin uh, aircraft world commercially. This one happens to be a very specialized 747 known as the Cosmic Girl. And what they did try to launch, they had almost great success, and that doesn't mean that it's guaranteed. They had a 70-foot-long rocket called Launcher 1. And what happened to this particular rocket, it actually gets deployed off, let's say, the fuselage of the 747. So in other words, this aircraft takes off, and there were a heck of a lot of people in the U.K., I understand, that got tickets to watch this, in literally in cold weather, like 40-some degrees with a stiff wind. And people saw it go through the clouds, but they never saw the rocket launch. But apparently the first and second stages launched fine, but they had a problem, I guess, after that, in which they lost nine small satellites from different independent, you know, independent paying you know, clients, but the point is, we're answer, to answer your question, going back, even even the U.K. is getting heavily involved. And we as a country, of course, are working with them. And, you know, space is the place. And as you said, if your interview with uh, William Shatner, you bet. It's, uh, well, a final frontier, mm -hmm. we call it. But it's still very positive for 2023. I'm excited. Me too. If people are uh, just tuning in, we're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, we are going to take uh, as many of your questions as we can throughout the hour. We have a special number for today as we're working to fix our uh, conventional number. The phone number is 833-969-4447. So that's 833-969-4447. Uh, Steve, you alluded to that uh, Virgin yes. Orbit satellite launch. I had mm -hmm. read that that would have made the U.K. the first European country to get satellites into space from its own soil, and even yeah. though that failed, I was curious. I didn't realize that. Where do most uh, satellites that are European in origin, where do most of them launch from? Very interesting question. And we go back to the, the launch that about Christmas Day last year of the amazing James Webb Telescope. So a lot of these countries are utilizing French Guiana as a launch location, mm. and the good reason is as you get closer to the equator, the rotation of the Earth is at its fastest or nearly at its fastest. So you would launch to the east as the Earth is turning west to east to get that extra oomph in this, into, into getting your payload into space, I should say. So in those areas, you're seeing a lot of people launch from there. India has some launch you know, platforms set up. 
also down into the Indian Ocean. So you're seeing these things pop up all over the place, and uh, who knows, maybe we'll even have a floating platform off the coast of New York City someday or <laughs> something like that. But this is becoming very common and very uh, commonplace to all nations that have tech- high technology and a spirit to go to space. One of the things that is the bane of a lot of radio general managers' existence has historically been solar flares because it causes all sorts of wacky things to happen with uh, radio signals. And I understand that we're in store for some major activity on the sun, including potentially some solar flares. What's happening in that respect? Well, Frank, we've kind of hit the Super Bowl early here before the Super Bowl looks <laughs> uh, you know, on ground here. This is going to be a big deal. Just this past week, we've had the following things happen. Solar Cycle 25, in case people are just tuning in and wondering, every 11 and a half years or so, or even it's a bigger cycle than that, but we were, we were learned and, and taught in school that some 11, 12 years, the sun reaches a peak and it goes and it waxes and wanes. Well, we're moving up higher into Solar Cycle 25. Astronomers are saying that it may peak earlier and may be higher than what the earlier predictions was for a kind of a mild to moderate one. But here we go. Just hours ago, we had another series of these amazing flares on the sun. A sunspot group right now known as AR-3184 pumped out on the level of X-flares, which is very powerful, a 1.9 class X-flare. It's not headed in our direction, but you have a sunspot right now. There's actually six major sunspot groups right now, Frank. So obviously in the dark of night, people can't look at it. But we always remind people to go to this website, spaceweather.com. If you go there while you're listening to the show, on the left side of the page, there's a live image of the sun. And I'm not exaggerating and never would. There's six major sunspot chains on the disk of the sun right now. What does that also mean? We've also had another powerful X-flare from that group that's right now near the center of the sun when it wasn't. It was an X1.2 flare. So now what I'm saying That sunspot group, as it moves from left to the right across the sun, once it gets, and it's pretty close to the center of the sun, if we happen to have another flare of an X level, and it does pump out enough energy from this, this would be like the shotgun blast if you're directly in the line of sight. Now, not to alarm people, we don't know if that could be a massive CME. The big difference is this. When you see a solar flare happen on the sun, it's traveling at the speed of light. It occurs lower in the atmosphere, and you put that word atmosphere in quotes because not a breathable atmosphere, but an incredible 12,000-degree surface called a photosphere. That particular light event hits hits the Earth in eight minutes. It takes eight and a half minutes for light to get from the sun to the Earth. That's bad enough. But if what happens after that, as it cascades up through the solar atmosphere, we call the sun's atmosphere the corona, not a breathable atmosphere, But those are what's called coronal mass ejections. They take upwards of 17 or 18 hours to hit the Earth. They're the ones more likely that are, and I want to split hairs on it, but flares are dangerous once they interact with the magnetic field of the Earth. But CMEs could be even more catastrophic. We go back to 1859 to the Big Daddy, the big classic one, the one that happened in September of 1859 called the Carrington event. We think, they don't know for sure, that on the X scale, This particular X-flare might have been as high as X-40, which is totally unbelievable. Imagine it, you know, and it's it's not 40 times more powerful than an X-1. But that particular time in history, we had no Internet, obviously. So the world's Internet was telegraph lines. And around the world, and even here in the United States, it was documented that hours later, 
after that CMA hit the earth in 1859. Many telephone cables and wires and telegraph lines along railroad tracks actually caught fire. And that's no exaggeration. That's incredible to even think that something like that could happen. It did, and it's still considered to be one of the major events, probably not in all history, but let's pray that we don't have one coming from that particular sunspot group the one I just described, that's really right near the center of the disk of the sun. You um, you alluded to that coronal mass ejection from 1859. Mm-hmm. The last time it took us this long to elect a Speaker of the House, it was 1859, <laughs> interestingly enough. Well, so what is the likelihood of a major coronal mass ejection or CME along the lines of what we saw in 1859? Is it something um, that's a one out of a hundred shot, one out of a thousand? Is it more likely than not? Well, how do you handicap the likelihood well, of something like that happening? The simple answer is it's more likely than not. And we've had experiences, too. In, 19, in 1921, there was the great New York Railroad flare and CME that affected transportation in New York and the whole environs, you know, rolling railroad tracks along the northeastern United States. In 1989, we had an incredible CME that actually hit the northern part, actually the focus of that particular CME, as it hit the magnetic field of the Earth, centered itself over Quebec and Canada. And the problematic thing is, if you have deep soil, the Earth can basically absorb a lot of that energy. But in that particular area, including the New York area, that whole area where igneous rock and granite is pretty much the ground level, That material doesn't penetrate the earth from the CME as easily, so guess what happens? It gets reflected back, and where does it go and saturate? It saturates into the power lines, and that's what happened there. It blew out, I don't know, I'm not making that up, that it happened maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 million people were out without power because of the density of the ground in which the CME hit. It wasn't like hitting into soft soil where the CME, a lot of that energy would have been absorbed. But there's something else that just happened, too, and this is kind of detailed, and I, ho- I hope I can explain it in a simple way. I'll do my best. We just had experienced something with this solar flare that's unusual. It's called a magnetic crochet. Now, what the heck is that? You sit there and you, you know, make, make, make a bib or a you know, little tiny shirt for a little child. No, there's a different kind of crochet. What this magnetic crochet is, there was an actual spike in the solar flare that hit the Earth in which it actually affected the Earth's magnetic field and actually affected it for maybe a short period of time. It could have been minutes. It could have been a little bit longer. But astrophysicists and scientists, they they study the sun, who studied the sun, noticed that this magnetic crochet jolted the Earth's magnetic field, which is incredible because you see how sensitive and, and how dependent we are on peace and tranquility from space. But the sun, to answer the question in finality, It's more than likely that we will have another one of these, but now the problem is very simple. The problematic thing here is we're such, what, a dependent world on satellites, cell phones, and everything else. And what happens in the electromagnetic pulse that we would get in now, in modern day times, I don't want to be the prophet of doom here on this show, hardly at all. But there's something that really, there's not much you really can do about that if we get a big massive X-flare or a big CME like the 1859 Carrington event, we're just a sitting duck in a, in a shooting gallery. Is, is a naturally occurring uh, EMP, electromagnetic pulse, the same thing as a CME? Is a CME and an EMP, are those synonymous with one another? Pardon my ignorance on this one, but if no, I don't no, know, no, I'm guessing no. the audience may not as well. 
No, and, and actually, this is a very good question. The whole thing that precedes this, in other words, what would precede the EMP, is the causation of having the coronal mass ejection hit. So that the coronal mass ejection is so powerful, let's say, if we got a giant one like Carrington event, that would be synonymous like that of an EMP. But what people hear, and they have a good reason to be concerned about this too, and not to shift gears totally, we know that rogue nations around the world, or anybody who's insane to launch a thermonuclear device into the Earth's atmosphere, and they've even done this study. And I know both of us have had this gentleman who really is the scholar on this, uh, Dr. P Peter Vincent Pry, mm -hmm. who is obviously the guy that we, we both talked to about this, and his analogy about even a small type of nuclear device detonated, let's say, let's say a diesel submarine from a rogue nation decided to launch a Scud missile that had a small nuclear weapon in it. Maybe not in megatonnage, but maybe in kiloton range, like that of a Hiroshima bomb, maybe 12 to 15 uh, kilotons. That alone, if it was injected into the Earth's atmosphere, let's say not you know, New York or any major city, off a coast, you could cause serious damage to the entire electrical grid there. But if you launched one, let's say North Korea decided to drop one from space, and allegations have been, and this is actually not totally proven, but it's pretty much uh, accurate to a degree here, that they launched a so-called satellite, the North Koreans, and somebody said, or they said, no, it was just like a concrete dummy object that they put in space. Some believe, I can't confirm it, but this is, you know, we read all different things, that if they did place a small nuclear device inside one of those satellites, you don't have to launch anything into space. You would just simply move it over the middle of the United States, like Nebraska or Kansas, and from an altitude of, let's say, space, 150 to 200 miles, that, if it had enough, you know, power and oomph, couldn't actually knock out the entire grid of the United States. And what are we so dependent on? You go get gas or you see those SCADAs, those, those the microprocessors that control all this stuff. Once you pump all that stuff and blow it away, uh, it's not a good sign. So CMEs would be the precursor to an electromagnetic mm. pulse event in the atmosphere. I, I appreciate you clarifying that. Thank you. We're you talking know. with Steve Cates. We're going to continue and take your calls in a moment. Our phone number is 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. There's three open lines. Love to hear from you. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. You saw me standing alone without a dream in my heart. Elvis Presley, who would have turned 88 years old this week had he still lived, 
uh, singing Blue Moon. We're talking with a guy that knows uh, more about the moon than anybody that I know personally. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. He also has a terrific podcast called The Dr. Sky Experience, which you can check out at WABC Radio. Dot com. You can also read the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. If you have questions, you can dial in at 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Let me say hello to Paul in Massachusetts. Paul, you're on with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, good evening. I'm good a little nervous. I'm not used to speaking on the radio, but I'm a little nervous. Oh, don't be um, nervous. We're as friendly was, as can no, be. No, don't be nervous. We're friendly. <laughs> okay. I was born in the Azores, the island of Santa Maria, which is the middle Ooh. of the ocean. Which Beautiful. Which belongs to Portugal. Um, they were approved already for European Space Agency satellite to be built there. Uh, but I, it's been already set for like four or five years already, and nothing's been done yet. Do you know the status on that? I really don't, but it's one of the most beautiful places. I'd love to visit there myself, and I know the observatories that they have, you know, throughout that island chain there. It's just absolutely beautiful. But like I said before, Paul, there's so many countries, so many people. I don't have an answer on that one. I mean, we could look into it. But the point of the matter is, all of these locations, the closer that they are to the equator, the more likely that you'll get an extra boost, as I call it, the turbo effect, because of the Earth's rotation is a lot, a lot rapid, more rapid, I should say as you get closer to the equator than if you were to, say, launch up from the North Pole or something like that. But, no, that's a, it's a beautiful right. place. And I'm going to add it to my list of places to look at uh, to maybe mm-hmm. go and visit because that sounds like a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the study was approved. But it said now some – they said now, right. now we might go to Norway. So I was just wondering if – I guess you're not really too sure about about it, I guess, right? I'm not, sir. I'm honest as always. When when we don't know, we tell the truth. And there you go. That's the uh, thank you, Paul. Great question. Food for thought. Ralph is in Ohio. Hello there, Ralph. Hello, uh, Dr. Kate. I good, uh, left morning on coast, and uh, there was a guy on coast recently, a flat earther. He said if the sun yes. is eight and a half minutes away, and it's as small as it is by the time it gets to Earth, you go a little bit farther, you shouldn't be able to see the sun at all. The house come if you see like Sirius, sixteen light years, uh right. four hundred light years. How can how can we see anything? Yeah, I'm glad Ralph there. has called, by the way, yeah, because Ralph. I yeah. have gotten increased calls from people mm-hmm. asking about this uh this theory of a flat earth. Even prominent people right. like Kyrie Irving have uh you know sure. expressed some skepticism about the spherical shape of the earth. What do we know mm-hmm. about this, Steve? Well, Ralph, it's a very good uh, question that you're proposing here, or or comment, I should say. But here's one of the proofs that I look at all the time, and everybody can see see that the Earth can't be flat. If you take a look at any sunset, Ralph, and that's clear sky, in other words, if you look the opposite direction where the sun set, there's a phenomenon, it's just a simple thing in beauty and in art, it's called the belt of Venus. Now, what's that? So when you look the opposite where the sun set, you just look back to the opposite area, what you'll see is this pinkish band, and it's in, it's in an arc. So if the Earth were flat, there'd be no way that there could be an arc in the sky. So that's the most simplistic proof that the Earth has to have a spherical shape. And it's actually so rudimentary. I mean, we show this to kids in one of our Dr. Sky programs, and we say, and we bring that subject up because a lot of children will say, you know, I heard, Daddy, 
or that the you know that the Earth is flat. And I say, well, take a look at that. How could it be curved when you see this band that's in an arc if the Earth were flat? That's the simple answer, as even the most basic of all things. I don't know where they come up with the rest of that, uh, Frank. It's kind of weird, isn't it? It certainly is. Thank you, Ralph. Eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. If you want to, if you have a question for Steve Cates, eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. We're talking about uh, things not of this Earth. Moving from the Moon to Mars, was there an earthquake detected on Mars? Absolutely, and this is amazing. If we go back and study this whole NASA Insight lander which has been running around on the surface of Mars for a long time. We go to Dateline, May the 4th, 2022. Well, what happened? On this particular red god of war, this particular spacecraft has a rover, I should say, has its little penetrating probe into the surface of Mars. Get a load of this. It detects a level 5 on the Richter scale earthquake. Now, that's highly unusual for an object like Mars for a couple of reasons. We here on Earth, we know from basic geology, that we have the thing called plate tectonics. You know, if you take your hand and slide it over the top of your hand, looking at it in front of you, imagine these massive plates on the Earth that are constantly shifting and the continents are moving. We know that a long time ago, allegedly, the entire North American continent, Africa and, say, South America, were all sandwiched together. Well, Mars doesn't have plate tectonics. And the other thing is Mars has, if anything, an extremely weak or non-existent uh, magnetic field. So isn't that a bizarre thing? that you're seeing or feeling or experiencing this little NASA InSight rover, a level five on the Richter scale, that, that's pretty noticeable. You know, I haven't been in any earthquakes, and I hope I don't, you know, experience any, but for people who know, whether you were in California, along the coast, let's say, of Chile, or anywhere on the Earth where earthquakes are prominent, God help us if we were up there near Alaska, when some of the most powerful and in Chile earthquakes that registered up in the nine on the Richter scale plus. So isn't that bizarre that we find on Mars a planetary object that you would think shouldn't have them? Right. It was detected and recorded. A lot of folks rely on these segments that we do to keep an eye out for what's worth watching in the night sky. The next day or two, the next week or two, the next month or so. What uh, should people be on the lookout for as they look up? Well, Frank, I hope we can spend a little time on this comet that's in the sky. And mm. they got to knock... Knock, not the media, I should say it correctly, not knock the media. But unfortunately, when I say the media, I'm talking about a lot of things we read on the Internet. And I'm just so tired of reading all the time about the next big asteroid is heading toward the Earth. And we find out at the end of the article, well, it's not anywhere near the Earth. It's 25 million miles away, but you had to know that it was headed toward the Earth. There's a comet in the sky. And everything I read and I'll be looking at this object later this week when the moon slowly go, fades away. It's been too bright. It's a comet called Comet C-22E3 with the interesting letters ZTF. What's ZTF? It was discovered back in March of 2022 by this observatory out in California, which is famous anyway, like Mount Palomar. They have this 48-inch telescope. Imagine a mirror, 48 inches, a monster telescope. And on that is a camera. Get a load of this. If you think folks out there, they have these new iPhones and these new Androids, this is a 605-megapixel camera that has a gigantic wide-field view. So it discovers this comet. And this particular comet, as we read in, in you know, articles on the Internet, it's passing close to the sun on January 12th, hey, like a day away, 100 million miles. Now, that's not very close for a comet to the sun. 
but he comes around toward the Earth on February 2nd at 26 million miles. But here's the interesting part. It hasn't been seen since Neanderthal, you know, humans allegedly and did exist way back, say, 50,000 years ago. So it hasn't been seen for 50,000 years. And I've observed comets for like 40 years. Some are bright, some are good. And it's so funny. One great comet discoverer said this, and I quote about comets. It's so interesting. He said, and I quote, comets are like cats. They do both have tails and they do precisely what they want. <laughs> and I think that's really interesting. I know it sounds hilarious, and it is so cool because when you look at comets, you're noticing a tail. Sometimes you notice a secondary tail called an anti-tail or a plasma tail, not dust, but just this gas. But this object, this is always truth here on you know, your show, The Other Side of Midnight, and everywhere else. This is not something that people are going to go out and go, oh, wow, look at the comet. It's something that you'll probably get to see in a pair of binoculars. Maybe it'll get bright enough to be seen in the darkest of locations. But see, here we go again. And I'm you know, not knocking the comet. It's a great thing to see. But I hope everybody gets to see it. And the way to see it, as we go to our own blog here at wabcradio.com, I recommend this. And here it is, folks, the best site of all that I know the gentleman who does this. It's not my site, and I love promoting people that do great work. It's theskylive.com. And on there, you'll be able to see individual maps of how it looks in a, in a you know, pair of binoculars in the star field. It'll show you a more advanced view if you have a larger telescope, and it shows you the most incredible thing I've ever seen. The deep sky image is if you had this monster telescope, and it live tracks the object right in front of you so that if you're trying to find it, you'll know exactly where it is in the sky. But the other things, quickly, that we find out, we just had the full wolf moon. But just on now the that, comet front, uh, Steve, sure. when, will the, when will the comet be closest to Earth to allow the best view with uh, binoculars or a telescope? In my opinion, you'll probably get to see it during the first and second week of February. But the moon, unfortunately, is going to be bright again. So in order to see it at all, you're probably going to have to wait toward maybe, say, a few weeks from now when the moon returns to new in our skies, and that occurs right around the 21st. That would be a good time to start looking at it in the morning sky. But theskylive.com will give you the exact location, the times, and it's such a cool place to go. But these are amazing. I love comets. I mean, the most amazing one, Frank, that I had ever seen here in Arizona was a comet back in 1996, and maybe some of the listeners saw it. It was a comet called Yakutake, discovered by a Japanese observer. I have never seen anything like this. The comet mm. came within 9 million miles of the Earth, right around the time, I think it was 1996, that the Oscars were on, sometime in March. And we didn't want to watch the Oscars. We went out to the desert, and the quick story is this. I have never seen a comet with a tail, Frank, that was over 170 degrees across the sky. It looked like you could see the nucleus. I was laying in this lawn chair looking up at these big binoculars, and I didn't want to take my eyes off this thing. But when you turned your head in the dark sky, no moon, the tail stretched three-quarters of the way across the sky. That was incredible. I've never seen anything like that before. And what were you uh, poised to mention, the next uh, great viewing that we should be on the lookout for? Well, what's interesting coming up here, for those everybody looking at the different planets, we had the story come out that all major planets, you know, the Earth is obviously one, so we had seven major planets strewn across the sky. But I'm going to suggest for people to do this. Look into the southwest of your sky, if it's clear, on the evening of the 22nd of January. Brilliant Venus, which you can't miss, 
and the planet Saturn, which you can see with the naked eye, are all going to converge together by a third of a degree in the sky. And that's kind of cool because that doesn't happen that often. And then the following night on the 23rd of January, the crescent moon, Venus, and Saturn all form this beautiful circle area within an area of less than about four degrees. So that's pretty cool for those that have cameras. They want to use their phones or whatever they have to take pictures of this. This is what I call sacred geometry, the most beautiful of things out there. We're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You can check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. You can listen to the Dr. Sky experience as we're just whetting your appetite for some of the subjects that they cover at wabcradio.com. Steve, let me ask you about a story that uh, that I encountered yesterday and I found just fascinating. Yes. You have alluded several times in uh, the course of our conversations that the reason the Earth is getting warmer isn't necessarily due to man-made behavior. It's due to solar activity and activity, you know, on on the surface of the sun. Well, uh, you know, I, I've been pretty concerned about man-made activity causing climate change and things of that nature. But I was really pleased to see that a a hole in the ozone layer has been repairing itself. And within a few short decades, if all goes as it's going now, this ozone layer hole might be fully repaired and fully back to normal. Um, Tell us about this. What is the significance of this story that was that was uh, that was uh, reported yesterday? And what does it mean for the future of uh, global warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it? Well, this is interesting, since the obvious truth is always this is interesting. And in my mind, we go back into the story of how the Earth's ozone layer was thought to have been destroyed some 250 million years ago possibly by supermassive volcanic activity on the Earth. But the Earth has a tendency to heal itself. And we talk about that a lot with John's show, John Katsimatidis, on Cats at Night, and we go into great detail there. But for those that haven't heard that, we find the Earth has this healing process. Now, you would imagine over 250 million years, that's enough time to hopefully heal anything. But what is this particular substance that we're talking about, ozone? It's triatomic oxygen. It's O3. And what you're talking about is actually happening. We don't know why, but this ozone hole is now kind of closing up. And ozone is so de- we're so dependent on this, obviously, on the Earth, because radiation from the sun in the form of this UVB, ultraviolet, deep ultraviolet radiation, is harmful to skin and to animals and things like that. And it's a real serious thing. So the bottom line is the Earth has the ability to heal itself. But interestingly enough, in the short term, we're still looking for the causation of why the ozone hole is actually shrinking mm. or getting close. So we're on the right track, and if humans are saying that they're doing it because they're doing everything they can to not pollute the atmosphere, that's also a good thing, obviously. But it all, start, it all talks about what happened with the Montreal Accord, where they you know, had to ban the CFCs and try to reduce that. Maybe that's an answer, too. Who knows? Christine in Manhattan has been patiently holding. Hello there, Christine. You're on with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Hi, Dr. Sky. Good morning. Um, you, were, you were talking before about these solar flares. and the, Yes, Christine. Um, I'm just worried about the magnetic field. Are we in any possible danger of one of these, some of the solar activity rending it or damaging it in some way? And what would happen to us? Great question, Christine. We're really not sure what the deleterious effects or the bad effects of what that could do to the Earth. But here's an interesting story. 
we find out that there's a big shift going on right now in what we call the Earth's geomagnetic pole. Now, there's two poles. We see the pole at the North Pole where the axis of the Earth goes right through and it spins where that zero rotation, you know, right at that ground zero. But we find the geomagnetic pole has been moving very rapidly, and it's really strange. I, I didn't realize this, and we did the research on it. The North Magnetic Pole is moving 500 feet per day compared to the Earth's geographic North Pole. But when you get hit with these solar flares, it does have the effect on changing something on the Earth. We're not quite sure what the effects would be, but I think we have to look in the long term. Some 780,000 years ago, the Earth flipped. So let's hope that these increases in you know, magnetism and energy don't flip the Earth's magnetic pole, because that would be really scary, because a lot of things would change, and that would take us, Frank, what, another two hours to talk that, about the details, <laughs> and we'll leave out the bad parts. Yeah, that's but for Christine, sure. I, I hope I've answered you. I mean, it's uh, not, let me put it this way, nobody really knows what the true effect of these CMEs on the Earth's magnetic field would do. It's not a good thing, but we have all these different reasons that things are changing on the Earth by themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, and I should actually allude to the fact or give an answer when you look at what's happening with the wandering of the Earth's magnetic pole, it's thought that inside the Earth, since it's magnetic and, excuse me, it's molten, there's molten magma, like, you know, you see it coming out of a volcano in Hawaii, but even more intense. There's big bubbles, they think, or bulges in that. And it's not, it's like if you have a washing machine and you don't balance it, what happens when it's on its spin cycle? It starts going bang, 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 bang. The Earth is this fluid thing inside the Earth, which changes the core and it's not going around in, in perfect symmetry. So let's hope everything balances out. Thank you, Christine. 833-969-4447 if you have questions. 833-969-4447. We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It's 2023, and in the last 10 days, I've heard a lot of talk about New Year's resolutions. I'll tell you what one of my New Year's resolutions is going to be. It's going to be to have many more conversations on the air with Steve Cates. Not only does he sound great, not only does he cover the kind of topics that you really don't hear elsewhere on the radio, but he explains what are at times very complex issues in ways that uh, even laymen like me can understand. If you want to hear more of Dr. Sky, you can check out the Dr. Sky experience at wabcradio.com. That's uh, wabcradio.com. Steve, we've uh, talked a little bit about the unified field theory. Remind folks what that is and uh, where we're going in terms of people uh, proving or disproving the validity of the unified field theory. 
Well, one of Einstein's lack of accomplishments, and I don't want to knock him, it's just that he never really could fu- fulfill this one theory, as we call it, the theory of everything. What it Slacker. really means is this. <laughs> we look at the four main forces in the universe, gravity, the electromagnetic force, something called the weak nuclear force, and something called the strong nuclear force. What Einstein was trying to do is to co- coordinate all them and synthesize them into one, one theory that works. And here's the problem. You have to unify gravity with all these other forces. But let me explain this. Electromagnetic forces, we know what that is. Electrons, you know, neutrons, things of that nature. Electricity, let's say. Gravity is the most complicated one. Astrophysicists, cosmologists, people that are studying quantum physics, they're, they're trying to understand the whole true story of gravity. The two problematic things in gravity, without going too much into detail, are the thing called dark energy and dark matter. These are subsets that we don't really quite understand gravity totally. But now, the weak nuclear force, what is it? It's about radioactive decay and how protons turn into neutrons. This is complicated. Then we have the strong nuclear force. This is the binding force that binds protons and neutrons like the sun does when it fuses things together. So Einstein had this difficulty of trying to see how we can combine gravity, special theory of relativity, put all this into one theory, that we would be able to call the toe, the theory of everything. And this is one of the greatest challenges that even cosmologists, astrophysicists, quantum physicists are trying to coordinate. And it's a shame that we lost the great minds like Stephen Hawking. Obviously, you know, he, he survived. I don't know how anybody could survive in that body with such a, you know, a horrible disease like ALS, but he did. And he had so many profound theories about trying to understand this and many other state-of-the-art physicists. And I'd love to, in future programs, as you said, you'd like to have these great conversations. And I enjoy this. And I hope the listeners do, too. We're trying to understand how to put everything into one theory. Now, some people may think, well, this is not a little arrogant. How can humans figure out that this is going to be the way it is? There's so much, Frank, that's unexplained out there. It's just amazing. So what is it? The more we know, the less we know. But we keep pursuing this so we can know Maybe where we came from. What was the concept behind this big explosion that some people say, which I like to call the big expansion? 13.77 billion years ago, something magnificent happened. Does it happen often? Does it happen in multiverses? Does it happen in, in other areas of the universe, meaning the multi-universe? And then the other concepts, which are really mind-boggling, and hey, I try to study as much as I can. And I'm just a tiny little speck of solar driftwood trying to understand this like a lot of people. But here we go. The most amazing things to try to understand is, what is consciousness? What is reality? What, what is time? You know, all these things combined into one are just so fascinating. But you know who's really given us the best answers so far? It's a device. The James Webb Telescope mm. appeared back almost to about 380,000 years after the alleged explosion. And it's revealing so many things that are just so incredible about this universe and about what's to come. It's just amazing. So... You know, and all the political stuff that we hear every day out there, and hey, you know, we have obviously problems in the country and around the world, but I don't know. I hope by our little conversations here that we're enlightening people to kind of let go of that for just a little bit while because the sun will be up tomorrow. And it all starts over again. Absolutely. During this time, we can have some fun. Absolutely. 833-969-4447. Pauline is in Queens. Hello, Pauline. Hi, Dr. Sky and uh, Frank. Good morning. Um, I have a question. Something's coming up, and I forgot all about it, but it's called sure. the Reverse Manhattan Hinge, and it's on oh. January 12th, 11th and 12th. 
what can you explain what that's all about? And I know that was the uh, I forgot his name. Uh, There's the, some some what is it? Uh, the, the person who runs the uh, Museum of Natural History or whatever the, the um, oh yeah, I forget what Doctor Neil, right? Doctor Neil. No, yeah, this Manhattan yeah. Henge, this Manhattan Henge is really funny. I've never things. seen it. I'd love to see it. And what it is is the alignment along the buildings in New York City, east to west. When we get an opportunity, and forgive me, I don't know the exact dates that it happens, but probably around solstice time, when the sun is rising and yeah, we're setting. Yeah, but this setting. time this is a reversed one, so you got to get up at ah, sunset. Right. You got to get up at sunrise, like at seven o'clock right. in the morning, and there's certain streets that it, you know, the, the, the light of the sun will shine. I mean, whatever. I don't. That, really that's know. better I for me. I don't. I'll, I don't, I, I'll, I'll see, see it when I uh, when I'm going to bed. Well, I can only tell you this: the reversed one would be obviously looking in the opposite direction of the sun, and you would be able to see through the big building chasms of New York City. You know, I'm going to do a little research on that one, Frank, because obviously I live here in Phoenix, but hey, I'm a native New Yorker too. And the truth of the matter is I've seen pictures of this where they show the sun right through the buildings of, let's say, east-west along the Manhattan caverns of buildings. But the reverse one, obviously, would be what? We're looking at the moon rising or the sun on the other side, Instead of looking west, we're looking east. But I have to check into that. But there's so many pictures out there of that, and I'd love to witness that. Maybe, Frank, we can hold a special WABC uh, gathering on a corner and do a live remote. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be. <laughs> that, that would be. certainly be fun. Uh, before I uh, let you go, speaking of items sure. on this earth rather than out there among the stars, if you were to uh, pinpoint the highest and the lowest points on this earth, where would you? What, what would they be? Well, the simple answer would be Mount Everest as far as a, ma- you know, a massive mountain, some 29,000 feet above the surface of the earth, and then the Mariana Trench, which we know, like James Cameron, has gone to the bottom of the deep, about 30-plus thousand feet below. But how about this? The closest point, I mean, the part of the earth that's closest to the core of the earth, if you were to go to the North Pole, because remember, the earth is wider at the equator than it is at the pole, there's a place in the Arctic Ocean called the Little Deep, so if you stood up there, or you're on a boat, or even if you were under the ocean in a submarine, the core of the Earth is only 3,950 miles from where you're standing, obviously a lot closer than if you were doing that at the equator. And then there's another interesting factoid here. We just followed them this morning. The most distant place away from land on the entire surface of the Earth is a place called Point Nemo. And it's actually what they call a space yard, a spaceship or a spacecraft graveyard. It's way down into the South Pacific Ocean. And at that point, in the center of mass of Point Nemo, you're 1,670 miles from the nearest landmass, which is quite fascinating. And if you want to look at the last one here, the lowest underground or deepest drilling that they've ever gone into the surface of the Earth. This is interesting. It's called the Kola Superdeep Borehole. And that was up near Russia and Norway. They went down 7.62 miles or 40,230 feet deep. And it was actually a hole that was drilled about nine inches in diameter. And you know what? The really the backstory on that is kind of spooky. They say that they actually sealed it up and they never told us why. But imagine drilling that deep into the earth, 7.62 miles. That's the deepest. I, I, I remember that. I've researched that a bit as well. What was yeah. the reason that the Russians had, uh, had, had burrowed so deep beneath the surface of the earth? Well, a wacky theory that I read on the Internet, I don't necessarily believe it, is they actually heard voices. Now, I don't make this stuff up. Maybe somebody else did. Right. But, I've, seen, I've seen that as well. Yeah. 
Well, they also said on a serious note that the reason they didn't continue to drill is that they actually punched through something that was very soft instead of rock, and they figured there was no way for the drill to get any deeper because they might have even gone into some of the magma of the earth. Who knows? But that's interesting. Imagine a hole 7.62 miles down. No, thank you. I'm claustrophobic. Yeah, I hear you. But what were they hoping to gain by going 7.62 miles? Not sure. I mean, I don't know if that was just a thing for thrills to say how deep we could go and Uh test out our best drill bits. But the reality of the situation is, yeah, that's a strange one. But somebody claims that there's actually a deeper one, that in Qatar, there was an oil well that went down 40,318 feet. Not a home stretch beyond that, yeah. but uh, interesting. Steve, so it, we're just full of good good stuff here. It is always a treat to talk with you. I want to encourage everybody to check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com and especially the Dr. Sky experience at wabcradio.com. Why don't we do this again in a couple of weeks, Steve? Well, thanks. Uh, thank you, Frank, and good morning and Happy New Year. Absolutely. Until then, uh, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. tell you i am one of these people maybe you're like this too where when i hear a story of somebody trying to commit a crime especially a violent crime whether it's an assault or an armed robbery or something along those lines and then that attempt to commit a crime gets foiled because someone an innocent bystander or even the uh, the person whose business is being robbed or the person who's being assaulted, the, whatever the whoever the purported crime victim would be in any given scenario, because that person is armed and then shoots the person that was about to commit a crime. I'm always happy, uh, honestly, and maybe this is um, an immature response, but I'm always happy when something like that happens because there's a part of me that always that says, all right, hey, that's what you get. You're going to go rob some innocent people. You're going to go assault some innocent people. That's what you get. You get shot uh, by a law-abiding citizen that uh, happens to be carrying a gun. Well, an interesting scene played out in Houston, Texas, at a Mexican restaurant last week. Police said a robbery suspect was shot and killed by a customer. Now, when somebody gets killed, obviously, that brings things to another level. Why are we talking about this? Why is this noteworthy? Why is this interesting? Here's why. So the deadly shooting happened at around 11.30 p.m. at night on a Thursday. And the Houston Police Department said this masked man pointed a fake gun at customers who were eating and demanded their wallets and money. So understand what happened. And you can look at this video, and I'm going to share the video 
on my uh, Facebook page right now at facebook.com slash Morano fan. So you could see kind of what we're dealing with here. Um, a, a robber used a fake gun to rob this Mexican restaurant and this masked man and the customers reading, he asked for their wallets and their money. So when the suspect turns to leave after he robs everybody, a customer stands up and shoots the suspect several times with a real gun. So the robber had a fake gun. The person that killed him had a real gun. And the suspect was pronounced dead at the scene. My initial reaction was, that's what you get. You shouldn't be robbing innocent people. You shouldn't be robbing businesses with a fake gun and trying to act like it's a real gun. But other people disagree. I got a very I got a very interesting note on this from a listener who is very conservative, who said, no, this is murder. And now a grand jury in Texas is hearing the case. The identity of the deceased male suspect who is in his 20s it was uh, is, was pending verification by the Harris County Institute of Forensic Science. I think we do have an update on that. I'll bring that to you in a second. Police said all the customers, including the shooter, left before officers arrived at the scene. So that is a little suspicious when, you, you know, if you're not doing the wrong thing here, you generally stick around and wait till the police to arrive, especially when there's a dead body lying there in the middle of a Mexican restaurant. So um, police shared the surveillance photos of the man who shot the sub- subject, and then they asked for the public's help in identifying him. Police also shared photos of the man's vehicle, which they described as a uh, 70s or 80s model pickup truck. So that was the situation as of a few days ago. Well, now a grand jury is going to decide whether this customer who shot and killed this robber in southwest Houston and is being hailed as a hero by some is being criminally will be criminally charged. Investigators said the 46-year-old customer who police now know the identity of, but they have not identified because he's not under arrest, they said that this guy did turn himself in and is cooperating with detectives. The attorney for this fella sent um, Channel 13 in Houston the following statement. Quote, My client, who wishes to remain anonymous, was dining with a friend at El Ranchito Taqueria, And as has been seen on video, a robbery suspect entered the restaurant and pointed a weapon at my client and the other customers demanding money. In fear of his life and his friend's life, my client acted to protect everyone in the restaurant. In Texas, and this is still part of the lawyer's statement, in Texas, a shooting is justified in self-defense, defense of others and defense of property. Money is property. The customer was has met with the Harris County District Attorney's Office and investigators with HPD Homicide. He fully intends to continue cooperating with the ongoing investigation. So University of Houston law professor Sandra Guerra Thompson said even if he's indicted, a jury likely wouldn't convict. And 
I'll be honest, I wouldn't convict. Guy walks in, is robbing a place, stealing everyone's money, is brandishing a weapon. You know what? I'm not convicting the guy that uh, that stood up to this guy. It's it's a shame that this young man was killed, but I hate to say it, you shouldn't have been robbing people. You shouldn't have been pretending you had a real gun. What do you think? 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. This professor, Sandra Thompson, said, quote, when a person uses force during an armed robbery, they have very heightened protection under the law. I know there are a lot of questions about the use of a gun because it wasn't a real firearm, but that really doesn't make a difference because it was used as a firearm and a person would reasonably believe that they were facing an immediate threat of deadly force. In the video, which you can look at on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan, the suspect can be seen on video taking control of the restaurant and pointing what looks like a gun at customers. Suddenly, this one guy starts shooting and even moving closer to the suspect as he keeps firing shots. He puts what looks like the customer's stolen money back on the table, then appears to realize the suspect's gun wasn't real. The customers, including the shooter, leave, leaving the owner and the workers in the shop. On Monday, the uh, medical examiner identified the robbery suspect as Eric Eugene Washington. And records show Washington had an extensive criminal history and was out on bond during this would-be robbery. Uh, just to give you an idea of uh, Mr. Washington's history, records show that in 2015 he was convicted on a lesser charge of aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon and sentenced to 15 years in prison in connection to the shooting death of a 62-year-old, a cell phone store owner. Uh, according to records, Washington was released on parole in 2021 and charged with assaulting his girlfriend in December of 2022. This guy was, not that I'm justifying anybody being killed, but this guy wasn't exactly a peach. This wasn't exactly a guy that found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time and uh, doing something bad because he found himself caught up with the wrong people. So, um, curious where you come down on this. 833-969-4447. this is an interesting case from a legal perspective, and we'll see where it goes. Speaking of legality, I'm going to be joined in about 10 minutes by uh, James Zirin. You might be familiar with James Zirin, a very accomplished attorney, very accomplished author. I've read several of his books, and he uh, is a former prosecutor for the Southern District here in New York. And uh, he can only be described, I think, as a Trump critic. But I'm very eager to ask Jim who I've interviewed before and who's always very intelligent and very interesting. I'm very eager to ask him if he thinks Biden is in trouble for this handling of classified documents. Because, uh, I, I mean, look, if Trump did the wrong thing, I've realized there are big differences between the case. If Trump did the wrong thing, does that mean Biden did the wrong thing? And if he, if Biden did the wrong thing, what does that mean for the future of the Mar-a-Lago documents case? So we're going, to get it, we're going to get into that. He also has a book called uh, Plaintiff in Chief. All right. What do you think? Is this shooting murder or self-defense? 
833-969-4447. Let me begin with Larry on Staten Island. Hello there, Larry. Hey, hello there, Frank. Listen, um, at, the t- at the time, uh, as you described it, uh, at the time of the shooting, the uh, robber had already collected his booty and was on his way out the door. So if he wasn't a threat to any customers or anyone anymore, that was not a justified shooting. And I'm more for Second Amendment rights. Sure, sure. I, I mean, this has nothing to do, really, with the Second Amendment because no one, I, I mean, there's no allegation that the gun that the customer was carrying was illegal. There's no um, no one claiming that he didn't have a right to have that gun on him. The question is, did he have a right to kill someone that had that fake gun. That's the question that this grand jury is going to have to decide. And then ultimately, if the grand jury decides to indict, that's a question that a criminal jury is going to have to decide. I don't think it matters. Fake gun or real gun, at that particular time, he was fleeing. So uh, there was no no reason to shoot at him. You should have called 911. Well, thank you, Larry. Yeah, uh, maybe Larry's right. Maybe he's right from a legal perspective. Morally... I can't see a jury, especially in a state like Texas, and I realize Houston is a little bit more cosmopolitan, a little bit more liberal than uh, most of the rest of the state, but I cannot see a Texas jury convicting this guy. Maybe he takes a plea deal to some minor um, minor cause, but if you're this guy's attorney, don't you say to the jury if it ever gets to trial, don't you say, look, if this gentleman, Mr. Washington, wasn't robbing everyone and brandishing a weapon, he'd still be alive today. Isn't that what you say? 833-969-4447. What do you think? What do you think? Pete on Staten Island, what what do you think? Good morning, Frank. I I had an incident like this about my daughter's 32 when she was like eight. I was in White Castle on Highland Boulevard, and some guy had a scarf on, came and announced a robbery. And these people that were in there, they were uh, Chinese people that didn't speak English because I was talking to them a little earlier. And uh, he was giving commands uh, to everybody, put your hands on the table, and they weren't responding. Uh, got this idea calling the police, you know, the uh, you know the, the customer doesn't have the option. I can't say, time out, you know. So I reacted. I'm a martial arts expert, as everybody knows. And uh, I had actually forgotten that, Pete. I didn't realize you were a martial arts expert. Well, yeah, well, at that point, I beat the guy to a pulp, you know, and then the uh, people in the store were yelling, no, he works here. It was a joke. I mean, you don't joke like that, you know. You're kidding. Worried about my daughter. Yeah. Yeah, Well, this is what happened. And um, I was very upset, you know, a split decision, you know, to make. And I felt bad about it. I felt so bad about it that I actually got a minus a little stroke afterwards because I got so worked up. And so it, wh- what happened in your case? Was there any sort of criminal implications for you? What happened? No, no. I called the 122 precinct. They came and they supposedly the cameras were off and everything. And the guy left and because, you know, he, he was making like he had a gun. I know, you know, fake gun. What's the difference between a fake gun and an empty gun? You know, you, you can't make the police are faced with this every day uh, to make that split decision, uh, decision that could change your life forever. Right. Well, oh, you're sorry. right, Pete, and I tend to agree with you. I guess what callers like Larry were saying is, look, the uh, the robber was leaving. He was leaving. He was no longer 
a threat to uh, harm one of the other patrons. He was on his way out. And uh, then that's when uh, this uh, this fellow, this 46-year-old, shot him repeatedly and killed him. Was that uh, necessary in terms of a self-defense claim at that point? And it sounds like you think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. I mean, maybe if he would have just shot him in the leg or in the hand or something. But, you know, when you're a police officer is trained to hit vitals, you know, they're not trained to wound. Well, they but again, to, this was not a police officer. Kill. This was just a guy right. having dinner on a Thursday well, night. You know, like we say, yeah, like we say, there's, there's three sides to the story. Uh, his story, the other guy's story, and the right story. Right. Well, you that's know, what... I, it's a very hard thing. Yeah, I, I, and thank you, Pete, and I'm glad you're doing okay now. That's precisely what this grand jury is going to have to decide. If you were on that grand jury, and I think, believe it or not, I mean, maybe they'll get to hear... I don't know how the grand jury rules work in Texas, but um, in a lot of states, including New York, you could testify if you you have the option. If you're the possible subject of a grand jury indictment, you can testify before the grand jury. Most lawyers don't like you to do that because they don't want you to say something that's going to get you in trouble and and get you an indictment. But sometimes it helps. I was on a grand jury and there was one uh, we indicted almost everybody. And there was one case where we didn't issue all the indictments that the prosecutor was looking for, in part because the guy that they were asking us to indict came before us, and he sounded very credible, and a lot of the people believed him. So I don't know what the rules are in Texas, but the grand jury is looking at the same video we are, and they are seeing the same set of facts that we are. Guy with a real gun kills a guy with a fake gun, shoots him repeatedly. And then leaves, then leaves the restaurant a couple of days later, decides to cooperate with police. So they're basing their decision largely on a lot of the same information that we have. 833-969-4447. I still come down to, I don't see any jury in Texas convicting this guy of anything. 833-969-4447. Steve is on Long Island. Hello, Steve. I, you know, the, the beauty of, of this is I kind of turned on the station uh, mid, midstream where I don't know if you mentioned the uh, the graces of the victim and the uh, the customer. Uh, and, and that really makes it a, a, a clear decision. Uh, there's no I, – I don't know if, uh, about the, the racial motivation – uh, I'm, I'm hoping that you know that doesn't come into play, but the intent of that uh, uh, robbery uh, uh, suspect—he walked in with a fake gun, but the intent was to commit a felony, to intimidate people, and like you said earlier, to take property, mm. make people fear, make people fear for their lives. And uh, somebody suggested you call 911. If I had a gun, that would even enter my mind. Uh, I'm, I'm carrying. People who carry guns don't carry them for decoration. They they carry them uh, to. And I, I don't own a gun, but um, if that uh, customer uh, shot him in, in, under the circumstances that are, are being uh, portrayed here. Um, you know, one might question why he left. Uh, I'm sure, you know, it's, it's an adrenaline. You kill somebody, 
And it's like, oh, my God, what did I do? Uh, but he he did what I think any rational person that that had a legal handgun would do. Somebody brandishes uh, a gun. I'm not, I'm not squinting and see if it's a real gun. You point the gun at me and I have a gun, I'm, I'm not even considering the uh, like you know the uh, the fact that he's got a fake gun. Uh, he put himself in a situation where uh, what he got is what he deserved. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're way too far in this country uh, where we're giving the uh, the criminals rights. And you know, you walk in there, like you said, uh, he put himself in a situation where he didn't consider the consequences of uh, uh, brandishing a, a fake gun. Uh, it didn't occur to him. Oh, you know, it's a restaurant. Uh, family's in there. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to encounter anyone that is going to give me any resistance. And uh, again, if somebody pointed a gun at me, I would make sure that there was no return fire. And uh, it, it could also partly be because of, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the societal uh, pressures that we're under. Uh, maybe he's a frustrated, like, like me. I'm frustrated that we spend more time pondering the rights of the criminal, in this case, a deceased criminal, uh, we're, we're, we're more concerned about, well, was it justified? Before well, I mean, look, I mean, that's why that's why there are juries uh, when, in this kind of thing. Right. Uh, but let me ask you this. And I, I think I agree with just about everything you said, Steve. But let me ask you this. So this guy who was killed, the robber uh, who um has a four-month-old, uh, a four-month-old son himself, right? And uh, I, uh, you know, I empathize with that because I have a son that's only a little bit more, uh, a little bit older than that. This is what this guy's mother said, right? The mother of the guy that was killed. This is what she she said. She says about the fellow that killed her son. She says, "I don't hate him. I can't hate him, but I I want to know why didn't you stop? If you had to kill him, I can deal with that. I can come to grips with that. He did something wrong. I understand that." But for him to be shot four times in the back leaving, and when he falls down, he shoots him four more times. You abused him. He was dead already, I, yeah, and, and that hurt. Uh, that hurts. That's what I, the mom said. I, now, uh, Like I said, I came in midstream, and I heard the, uh, I guess, your summation of what had happened. Um, being shot multiple times like that, um, I'm not going to change my opinion. I'm going to chalk it up to uh, adrenaline, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, I, I can't imagine the, the fear and the adrenaline that uh, one would uh, experience when they had a gun pointed at them. Um, I, I, that I can't, uh, I can't imagine. I don't know. Of, of, well, not that I, I don't know. I'm not even going to start to figure out whether... The first bullet killed him, and the other seven shots, uh, I guess uh, an autopsy can determine that. Maybe the first bullet killed him. Yeah, well, that's, 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 I'm sure, and thank you, Steve, very thoughtful call. That's, I'm sure, a question, whether the autopsy report and so forth, that's a question that the grand jury will be addressing. And And we don't have access to the autopsy report at this point that they do. I'll tell you what I do like about this, this shooter here. 
unlike, say, a, uh, a George Zimmerman, who um, clearly used the incident with uh, Trayvon Martin to, um, I don't know, be, he wanted to become a cause celeb. This guy, by choosing to remain anonymous, he doesn't want to do that, right? He clearly doesn't want to be in the spotlight. He didn't ask for this. He didn't go hunt this guy down the way that George Zimmerman um, sort of did with uh, with Trayvon Martin. He was minding his own business having dinner. And he's choosing to remain anonymous. He's not looking, I don't think anyway, who knows, when it's all said and done. He's not looking for a six-figure book deal He's not looking to do the talk show circuit. He's looking to just maintain his quiet, anonymous existence. This is the mother of uh, Eric Washington, the uh, robber that was killed. And when you heard the news, what what went through your mind? Can't be true. Not my son. That's not Eric. We know. Can't be. That's what went through my mind. Yeah, she said that... um, she had spoken to him um, uh, just a couple hours before this happened, and her son told her that he was uh, he was going to try to do better, and he was having a tough financial position, and he has this four month old son. He was going to try and do better, but clearly, I don't think he told her he was going to go out and rob a restaurant. What do you think? Eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. Tommy. In Staten Island. Hello, Tommy. Hey, Frank. How you doing this evening? Doing well, thanks. Um, so, my opinion. So, there's two factors here. First of all, as Larry, the first caller, pointed out, the threat. There's no longer a threat. The guy was leaving. All right. Um, so that's that's debatable whether or not you justified in shooting somebody who's leaving. He did shoot the, su- the suspect. He took him down, and then he paused stood over him, and continued to shoot again. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the changing factor. Because as you know, jury selection is he. And I think that that's where there's going to be an issue. So, again, uh, Texas law is a little different. You do have the right to shoot somebody while they're leaving. Um, but what changes the factor is the fact that he paused, stood over the gentleman, and continued to shoot him. You know, that's interesting. And, that, and I know uh, you're, you know, you're a, you're a, a gun owner yourself, Tommy. We've, uh, I know you and we've talked before. So you're not exactly somebody that shies away at the, um, you know, the notion of using gunfire. But someone just text messaged me about this. He said almost exactly the same thing that you just said. He said the first bullets may have been defense, but the next few bullets, that's when it becomes murder. And it sounds like that's where you kind of land. That, that's exactly where I stand. And, you know, I, I'm a certified instructor. I teach the basic eight-hour course. We teach the HR-218. Retired police officers are required to have. They want to carry their firearm into state. Uh, and these, these are things we teach. You know, you can't. Uh, again, police officers are different, but a civilian has similar responsibility. The police officer has more responsibility. But once the threat is stopped, you can't, you can't continue to shoot. And to pause and then stand above the gentleman, it almost becomes vengeance at, at that point. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think if that, with that, you can turn a jury. Uh, Tommy, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, eight, we're going to take a couple more calls on this, and then we're going to talk with this uh, Biden documents case with uh, James Zirin. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Hi. Um, 
Yeah, um, the behavior at the end with the, you know, the extra shots and all, that's going to work against them. And now if you separate that from it, uh, anytime somebody puts a barrel of a gun in, in your face, hey, all bets are off. You know, I mean, you take your chances. And the fact that the gun wasn't real, that doesn't matter because you, you thought your life was at stake. And uh, somebody and, and everybody says, oh, he was on his way out. I don't know about that. He was walking back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And nowadays, uh, people just thrill kill. Hmm. They come back in, in the site and say, oh, I think I'm going to off everybody in this place. Uh, uh, Pamela, thank you. We're going to give you the last word. Jim's, Jim Zirin is waiting in the wings. Uh, those of you that are holding, we can uh, we can try and get to you a little bit later. want to get into this Biden documents case with James Zirin, author of the book Plaintiff-in-Chief. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, it looks like even though a majority of the country would prefer something else, it looks like there's an excellent chance we could be heading for a Biden versus Trump rematch next year. Well, as much as this might be decided in voting booths and in electoral precincts around the country, it looks like a lot of different aspects of this campaign are going to be decided in courtrooms. President Trump is facing uh, more legal hurdles than I can count at this point. You have the Mar-a-Lago documents case. You have the Georgia grand jury investigation. You have the attorney general situation in New York. Probably about a dozen others uh, that I might not even be aware of. What does President Trump's history as a litigant tell us about where the next year and maybe the next five years are likely to take us as a country and likely to take him? Well, someone that has spent a lot of time looking into that is a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. He's a columnist for Washington Monthly, and he's the author of a book called Plaintiff in Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits. It is great to welcome back Jim Zirin. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Well, I'm delighted to be here with you, Frank. So, Always a pleasure. Uh, the pleasure is uh, is all mine. Let me ask you about uh, some news that uh, our audience might have encountered over the last day or two. A lot of people were hearing a constant drumbeat of news related to the Mar-a-Lago documents case. In the case of President Biden, it looks like there might have been some classified documents handled in an improper way, taken from the White House when Biden was the vice president and put in essentially a private office. Based on what we know of this situation now, how do you think that whole situation looks? Well, it was a political gift to uh, the MAGA people and to Donald Trump because, of course, they'll draw a a parallel uh, between the two cases. And uh, Trump characteristically likes to point his finger at whoever is attacking him and say, well, um, you uh, uh, didn't do this to Obama. Why are you doing it to me? Um, As if uh, I robbed a bank and... uh, I said somebody else robbed a bank and uh, they got away with it. Why can't I get away with it? But uh, the fact is there really isn't, uh, based on what we know now, 
much of a parallel between the two cases, uh, both because of the quantity of documents uh, that were involved in the two cases. In Trump's case, there were about uh, 325 documents. In Biden's case, there are 10. Uh, and the significance of the documents, because uh, the Trump documents, uh, 100 of them, uh, consisting of 700 pages, were the highest levels of classification, uh, while the Biden documents, we don't know the level of classification, but uh, there is uh, no indication that they were the highest level. The Trump documents involved nuclear uh, uh, secrets of uh, a foreign country. The Biden documents don't appear to involve nuclear secrets. So there are many distinctions that could be drawn. The most important one from a legal standpoint is that Trump resisted the subpoena uh, of the grand jury uh, in Washington uh, and uh, certified finally that he turned over all the documents, which turned out to be false because when uh, the FBI went in and executed a search warrant, they found additional documents. Well, in the case of Biden, um, the very next day after the documents were discovered, they were turned over to the National Ar Archives. So uh, there are uh, many distinctions. Another is uh, Trump claimed um, that uh, perhaps the documents were planted at Mar-a-Lago, but the documents that were in question, uh, uh, the 12 boxes in, the, in his storage room and uh, in um, his office, uh, were in his uh, continuous custody. Uh, so it's hard to say they were planted, while uh, in the case of Biden, they were not in his continuous custody. So it's <laughs> entirely possible that the Biden documents uh, were planted by someone. At least it's plausible. But at this point, we really don't know. Um, the essential distinction is that, that Biden has appeared to cooperate with uh, the government and turned over the documents the next day while Trump stonewalled. It, keeping in mind, obviously, that there's no similar drama around refusing to surrender documents and keeping in mind the difference between the volume of documents involved with uh, Biden and the volume of documents involved with uh, with Trump. It's been reported that the protocols surrounding classified information are pretty clear. And you'd think that there's nobody that knows those rules better than Joe Biden, not only from his time as president and vice president, but from the many decades that he spent in the U.S. Senate. At the very least, is there a sloppiness here that Biden uh, should have been better prepared to handle? Well, Biden uh, said he was surprised that uh, there were classified documents uh, there in his, uh, in his office, his think tank office in Washington. He'd been away from the documents uh, for some period of time, um, and um, he uh, uh, possibly was sloppy. Uh, possibly he wasn't sloppy. They were mixed in with other personal documents, like the plans for his son's funeral. Um, and um, it, uh, uh, we really don't know at this point, and it warrants further investigation and uh uh, before we can make a judgment as to uh, whether he was sloppy or he wasn't sloppy. Uh, Trump's, but even if he was negligent, even if it was a mistake, uh, Trump's conduct was quite intentional. He um, knew that he was taking classified documents from the White House. He knew he was keeping them there at Mar-a-Lago. We don't really know why he did this. We don't know who had access to the documents besides Trump. Uh, they were there on the premises, 
there were no safeguards, and some of those documents required maximum security. So uh, it's a very, both the cases appear to be quite dissimilar rather than comparable, as is suggested by uh, uh, the uh, House uh, uh, Oversight Committee, uh, Representative Comer, and um, uh, by even by um, uh, Kevin Speaker McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy. Yeah, it does seem though that even though the facts may be dissimilar, it appears that Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, m- might be handling them similarly in terms of uh, a bit of uh, an arm's length uh, approach to them and appointing people that uh, are generally regarded as independent arbiters to investigate the individual cases. Is that fair? Uh, I think that is fair. Uh, he turned over the Mar-a-Lago case to uh, uh, Jack Smith, uh, along with the uh, January 6th case, uh, and so that you have a special counsel. And in the case of the Biden papers, uh, actually the U.S. attorney in Illinois, who was a Trump appointee, has been investigating that situation since November when the documents were first turned over. And as I understand it, he is... Uh, rendered a report to uh, Garland, or is about to, and uh, we'll have to see where the investigation goes from there. I don't mean to minimize uh, 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 the Biden papers. I think we have to know more. Um, We have to know more about the circumstances of uh, the documents being retained in his office and uh, what uh, the nature of the documents was and uh, their degree of classification and uh, right, but and your, other your point is that might bear on it. At this point, it doesn't appear to be the same thing as what we doesn't saw. Doesn't appear to be the same Got thing. It. There are many distinguishing factors. Got it. Uh, if people are just tuning, we're talking with uh, James Zyron. He's a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, columnist for Washington Monthly, and the author of the book "Plaintiff in Chief: A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits." A very entertaining and very informative book that really chronicles uh, President Trump's whole litigation history going back about 60 years. We're going to get into the book in just a minute. But uh, some other legal issues that uh, President Trump is facing involve this Georgia grand jury. In the aftermath of the 2020 election, I think by now people that pay attention to this have probably heard the audio of President Trump speaking to authorities, essentially saying, you need to find me X number of votes. And a lot of people are saying this is um, an indication that he was looking to, um, you know, do uh, something that was not exactly on the up and up. Apparently, the Georgia grand jury has uh, prepared a report. What do we know about the status of the Georgia case at this point, And where does that case go from here? Well, the Georgia case, uh, Frank, is uh, particularly uh, dangerous uh, uh, for Donald Trump because uh, assuming he or another Republican uh, is elected in 2024, uh, they will have no power to pardon him uh, since uh, the pardon power only exists for uh, offenses against the United States. This if if he's state, convicted, if he's convicted. State offense. If he's convicted. The second aspect is that if Garland indicts and there's a federal indictment and a Republican gets in and uh, appoints a, uh, a MAGA-oriented attorney general, uh, that attorney general could simply discontinue the prosecution as uh, uh, Bill Barr did in uh, uh, the case of uh, General Flynn. So uh, it, um, 
is a very dangerous case if he's convicted. Now, where it stands now, uh, really a little bit at sea. we know uh, that the grand jury uh, made a recommendation and gave a report to prosecutors in Georgia. Apparently, that's the Georgia procedure. Um, it's unlikely that they merely issued uh, what lawyers call a presentment, which is simply a finding of wrongdoing without a recommendation uh, that there be an indictment. If uh, prosecutors uh, follow the grand jury report uh, and there's an indictment of Trump under various violations of the Georgia election statutes, um, then the case in Georgia will be off and running and will continue. And so what do we think the timetable is for that, for when we'll know if there are indictments? A lot of people are wondering how that's going to coincide with the political calendar over the next year and a half. Well, of course, this is a politically charged prosecution, because, particularly because Trump has announced that he's a candidate. Uh, and uh, you could just visualize whatever the timetable is, I would think. Uh, if there is a recommendation for indictment, an indictment would be coming uh, in Georgia, would be handed down within the next 30 days. Um, and uh, if there is an indictment, then the question is, how will that play out? Will Trump go into the Georgia courts and say, look, uh, I'm running for president and uh, I uh, can't stand trial now. Uh, I have to uh, be free to, uh, and my mind has to be free to uh, focus on the campaign. Whether or not a Georgia judge would uh, uh, buy that argument is another question. Um, so either the trial would go forward reasonably quickly or else uh, uh, there'd be a postponement until it's seen uh, uh, what happens in the primary and Trump is nominated in the general election. There's also the possibility that if Trump isn't nominated by the Republican Party, uh, he'll launch a third-party candidacy, in which case he'll still have the argument that he's running for president. So he'll try to – Trump's characteristic litigation tactic when he's charged with anything besides counterattacking against his accuser is to seek delay, and he would certainly try to delay uh, any indictment brought against him by anyone um, – on the basis that he is a candidate for uh, president of the United States. Uh, talking with uh, James Zirin, author of the book Plaintiff in Chief. Jim, obviously I realize your expertise is a legal analysis, not necessarily political analysis, but we've actually seen a number of world leaders around the world run for office successfully, either after being charged or in some cases even after being convicted. We saw uh, Benjamin Netanyahu just return to power as the prime minister of Israel. We've seen following a prison sentence, uh, Lula, the new president or the and the old president, of Brazil, uh, after serving time in prison, come back and uh, uh, win a very tough election. Silvio Berlusconi in Italy comes to mind. I'm sure there are a dozen other recent examples that we can cite. Politically, do you think that uh, a prosecution of Donald Trump on a state level, whether it's a state like Georgia or a state like New York, for instance, could that actually feed in to his political appeal and feed into the notion, especially if there's a, a competitive primary against someone like a DeSantis, feed into the notion among some of his supporters that he's constantly under attack and he's constantly being persecuted? 
Well, the question is run that argument for now for many years. And uh, the question is, how many times can he go to the well? Uh, if he's indicted for election fraud in Georgia, that's those are very serious crimes. And how members of the voting public uh, will uh, analyze uh, those charges and uh, what they uh, uh, how that will affect their attitude uh, it really, uh, since I'm not a pollster, I, I can't mm. uh, give you an opinion on, except I think that probably his MAGA base thinks he's a victim anyway and thinks he's the cat's meow anyway, will be unaffected by the fact of the indictment. And others who were independent or maybe on the fence um, might decide that they've had enough with uh, Trump. I think there's a mood in the country right now, Trump fatigue. And uh, many people feel, even those who supported him uh, when he first ran for office, feel they've had enough of Trump and uh, they'd rather turn to a, a more substantive candidate. Well, yeah, I'm certainly hearing that from uh, a lot of the callers that I talk to on a regular basis who were enthusiastic Trump backers in the last two election cycles, but uh, have sort of tired of uh, the Trump show, for lack of a better description, and are uh, more willing to take a chance on a candidate like a DeSantis or another conservative that they feel is Trump without the drama. So, uh, well, I, but that's why I'm curious whether the prosecution would sort of rally those potentially wavering Trump supporters back to Trump's side. But I guess only time uh, only time will tell. Lastly, before we talk about plaintiff in chief, I have to ask you to explain uh, what went on with the Trump organization. Alan Weisselberg, uh, former President Trump's longtime chief financial officer, was sentenced by a New York judge to five months in jail. He's heading off to Rikers Island. Evidently, the Trump company was found guilty, but obviously a company can't go to prison. And Weisselberg cooperated in this investigation. I followed a lot of trials on a state level and on a federal level where there are cooperators. And oftentimes they get away with doing minimal jail time. And usually they end up putting someone in prison. I don't remember seeing an instance where someone cooperates against a company and the cooperator is the one that ends up in prison. Break down this case for us if you can, Jim. Well, as as you pointed out, you can't put the company in prison, but he was instrumental in uh, convicting the con- company. So uh, presumably his cooperation was given some weight by the sentencing judge. He did plead guilty to uh, these uh, uh, crimes of tax fraud uh, and business fraud, uh, of which the company was uh, also convicted. And um, the uh, judge uh, sentenced him on the basis of his guilty plea. Uh, but whatever fraud was involved, he had said at the outset that he was not going to cooperate against Donald Trump, but he would cooperate against the Trump organization. And um, he uh, is now uh, facing a prison term. There's a question as to whether he might change his mind and give evidence against Donald mm. Trump in order to avoid going to jail. Uh, we really don't know. That's up in the air. Uh, and that's maybe why the judge sentenced him to prison uh, because uh, and refused to uh, suspend sentence, which the judge could have done, uh, because he was hoping that, uh, as the prosecutors were, that Weisselberg would be willing to uh, give evidence against Trump because the criminal investigation of Trump in New York County uh, is uh, continuing and... Uh, 
journalist uh, David K. Johnston, who's been following Trump for years and who's also a lawyer, uh, recently broke down a uh, very convincing uh, state tax evasion case against Trump. And uh, perhaps they're interested in Weisselberg's testifying in that case. The book, Plaintiff in Chief, a portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 lawsuits, in addition to being pretty informative uh, and I would venture to say pretty critical of President Trump, it's also um, very creative in terms of all the books that have been written about Donald Trump. I don't know that anybody has uh, taken the tact of looking at his litigation history. What inspired you to write this book? Where'd you get the idea from to look at his history of lawsuits? Well, I started uh, uh, because uh, I know him uh, with uh, the uh, legacy of, and tactics of Roy Cohn, whom I had uh seen in court whom I knew as a lawyer uh and uh I knew exactly how he approached litigation as a form of uh lawfare or warfare um and uh, the destructive tactics that he used and I was struck by the uh fact that of course Trump was uh, uh mentored by Roy Cohn and mentored in litigation uh, Cohn represented him in the race discrimination case, which was the first litigation uh, that Trump was uh, involved in along with his father. And that was in 1973. And in that case, this, uh, uh, Trump, uh, after it was filed by the Justice Department for violation of civil rights of tenants who uh, sought to live in Trump properties and were rejected because of their race, rejected because they were black, uh, and the evidence was quite overwhelming. Uh, the um, Trump consulted a number of lawyers in New York, and they all said, settle the case, take, the, take a decree, uh, admit without admitting or denying that you discriminated, agree that you won't discriminate in the future. And uh, Cohn said, nonsense, you've got to fight. And uh, Trump liked that advice. So what they did was, as uh, soon as uh, Cohn got into the case, they filed a counterclaim for $100 million against the government for bringing the case in the first place. Well, that was dismissed quite quickly. The next thing they did was they began to attack uh, the FBI and the Justice Department for what they called were Gestapo-like tactics in interviewing tenants and uh, uh, managers in the various Trump properties, rental agents. And um, the judge finally held a hearing on all that. This took many years uh, and uh, rejected all of those claims. And then how did they end up? At the end of the day, they agreed without admitting or denying that they discriminated. They said they uh, would not discriminate again in the future. Of course, they did continue to discriminate. And I saw this uh, pattern of... Uh, cutting corners, uh, contempt for the law, uh, refusing to abide by legal standards that almost anyone would abide by, uh, and in Trump's conduct. And I saw began to get interested in all the lawsuits that he brought against people, many of them frivolous, and all the lawsuits that he was defending, uh, where he had kind of did the same thing, counterclaims, blackening the other side, using the press, calling press conferences, trying the cases in, court, in, um, in the press, and using the media. 
to bring pressure on the legal process. And uh, I saw it all coming. And um, he continued to use those tactics after he, uh, when he ran for office, and he used those tactics uh, uh, while he was in office. Jim, I think, unfortunately, I'm going to there. I have a ton of other questions for you based on some of the cases that you cover in this book, Atlantic City, the USFL, and a whole bunch of others, uh, but we're pressed for time. So we'll do this again in the future. Plaintiff in Chief is the book. Its author is former federal prosecutor James Zirin. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. Our number is 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. We will continue with your calls in a moment, 833-969-4447. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, if you look at our refrigerator in our house, you will see uh, mostly some Carmine-related magnets and so forth. And I'll tell you what you also see in our house. You will see the radio ratings because we're very, very proud of that, right? And Carmine's not of an age yet where we can put his test scores on the refrigerator, as you can hear there. So whenever I walk by Carmine by the room of the kitchen, and he doesn't even really formulate speech yet. I don't know if that he understands what radio is, let alone ratings. I always point to him. I said, you know, son, when you start doing well, we're going to put your report card on the refrigerator. That's daddy's report card. Now, what if he doesn't do well? What if it's a situation where you have a um, someone in your household that's failing? grade-wise or whatever else, do you still put the number up on the report card, the report card up on the refrigerator to kind of show, look, you got to do better? Well, let me tell you what one principal in New York is doing. And she is being heavily criticized for this. Big article in the New York Post uh, last Sunday. Principal Victoria Najera is being branded as cruel after posting test scores to embarrass low achievers. Now, I have to tell you, I was a little surprised that she was doing this, but I was even more surprised that this was this controversial because my teachers, when I was in school, uh, Mr. Vigiano, Ms. Zadik, Mrs. Gass, yes, I did have a teacher, Mrs. Gass, the, if you did poorly on a test, they paraded you in front of the whole class. The, the idea was that they would kind of shame you into wanting to do better. Now, obviously, if someone's got a, a serious issue, like a learning disability or dyslexia, I don't think any teacher would do that, and I doubt that this principal would. But this principal in the South Bronx has been publicly posting student test scores in the school lobby for everybody to see in order to shame low achievers into performing better. 
And they're saying, they did a whole investigation over this. They're saying this was unprofessional and, quote, arguably cruel. My question for you is, what do you think about this? Should a principal, should a teacher, in this case this is the principal of a school called uh, the Longwood Academy of Discovery, should a teacher be posting test scores with the idea of embarrassing and maybe motivating students? 833-969-4447. we got a new number for today. 833-969-4447. I have to tell you, this is very old school. But I realize you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to hurt kids' feelings and everything these days. I do think there's a potential benefit from this. Now, if a kid is really struggling, you want to make sure they get the help that they need. You want to make sure they don't uh, spiral into a, a disastrous uh, spiral uh, cycle of anxiety and depression or anything like that. But if you're doing well, you want everybody to know it. And if you're not doing well, sometimes this could be the motivation, the kind of positive peer pressure necessary to get you moving in the right direction. What do you think? Too much, too little. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. And look what we have here. Look what the cat's dragged in. We have the uh, president and general manager of Red Apple Audio Networks, Chad Lopez, coming in. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Frank. It's great Good to morning. see you dark and yeah. early. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year to you. The first time I'm seeing you. I know. How was your so Christmas and everything? It was great. I had a great Christmas. You know, th- this this year, it felt really good to get back. I felt like we're getting back to being normal. You know, uh, like you it's, know. it's not quite there, but it's it's getting closer. You know, it's such a good point. Everything this week, you're seeing the first state of the state address in this state and that state since 2020. First this, first parade uh, next week, first Martin Luther King parade in Baltimore. Big shout out to our listeners in WCBM yeah. since uh, 2020. And uh, I think you're exactly right. We're, we're kind of kind of learning to deal with, all right, you might get the flu, you might even get COVID, exactly. but it's not going to be something that you need to alter your life to avoid, right? That's, that's right. That's yeah. right. And, and you know what was nice is uh, it, it felt good to see a lot more people out and they're enjoying themselves and not so concerned about, uh, you know what the issue is, though? Safety. Safety mm-hmm. was the issue. Mm-hmm. I, did, I did see a lot of that and people were concerned in New York City about being out and about town. In New York City, yeah, so and, uh, which look, is we, yeah. we hear the same thing from our listeners in Baltimore. We hear the same thing from folks in Tennessee. We even, believe it or not, hear it, the same thing from uh, listeners in Anchorage, Alaska. Right. So uh, I think uh, this is a this is a trend that uh, I don't know. We'll see where yeah. things go. Uh, where things go from here. But I think it all ties in too, right? Like you said, um, you know, I remember going to school, and if I I was I went to an all boys Catholic mm. high school and to uh, Catholic schools all my life, right? So. The nuns back then, they would embarrass you. Right. They would embarrass you if if you if they. I remember multiplication was the one where I'd be like, oh my god, I remember the whole thing because if I made a mistake, the nun would make me come up to the front of the classroom or anyone that made a mistake. Back then, it was a little bit where they they didn't they they didn't. Uh, they didn't, didn't, hit, you yeah, they didn't hit you with the rulers. Yeah. You know, so it was a little. You know, but they still were yeah, very Curtis strict. Is all the story, and they were about 
embarrassing you a well, little bit. Well, so let, let me ask you, as both a father, as a guy that was in the military, and as a guy that's a, a leader of a company <laughs> that includes a lot of young people, where you come down on this? Because I, I've seen you uh, be very tough with people, right. including me, and right. I've seen you <laughs> use a lot of positive reinforcement with a lot of people, including me, and I've seen both uh, be really effective. And I've seen sometimes, you know, you praise behind the scenes. Sometimes you praise publicly in front of everybody. Uh, and sometimes you rebuke privately behind the scenes. What do you think the proper role for an educator, a principal or a teacher is? Is this out of line for this principal to do this? Uh, Postal, the great. You know what? I'm probably the wrong person to ask that mm-hmm. question. And I'll tell you why. Because I believe, and like you said, I've done it publicly behind closed doors or, you know, even – praising or if I'm reprimanding it's it's just I come from the in, in the military in the military it was if you didn't if you did something that was not right or was wrong right first time now the military now they'll, they'll give you 20 mm-hmm. chances for you to say anything <laughs> to you but when I was in the military if you did something wrong the first time don't do it again second time you're going to kill everybody on the ship if you do not learn and do that. and so they would publicly and that that was just the way that it was in boot camp if you screwed up Everybody's dropping and giving you 50. That was it. So you then learn to work as a team, right? But what it also did was it made everybody in the military and made them good. I, I believe, even in, in school, in grammar school, if you weren't, it made me better. I, I said, oh, I can't. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to go up to the front of the class. Military was very different. If you did something, the whole unit was affected by mm-hmm. it. It could be the whole ship that was affected by it. So do I think this uh, teacher was tough? No. I don't. I think we need to get back to that. Well, to be well, quite honest, I think we need to get back to well, that well, a little bit. And I tend to agree with you, honestly. And uh, the principal here is saying uh, they did an investigation. I mean, the principal, this, sorry, right? Yeah. And the principal here is saying that uh, that she started goal setting for all her students and displaying their progression throughout the year, and that's right. why she put these grades up there for everybody to see. And she said that she intended this to motivate and give students incentives to improve. And if that's really what she was doing. I think uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. One of the staffers from the school told an investigator, because you could always find somebody that wants to get the principal or the boss in trouble, that um, <laughs> that the principal w- thought that the students needed to be embarrassed to do better. My view is, even if that's what she was trying to do, I don't think that's there's anything wrong with that either. Yeah. I remember when I was in fifth grade, I didn't bring my homework one day, and Mr. Vigiano, my teacher made me uh, go over to the kindergarten class and ask for permission from in front of all the kindergartners mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to do my homework in there. And it was designed solely to embarrass me. That's right. You know, right. And you know what? I, I think I learned the lesson. Did, I mean, Frank, do they still have detention in school? I, you know, it's a good question. I remember they don't have detention like I used to have it. I used to have to scrape the gum off of the <laughs> uh, underneath all the cafeteria tables. But somebody who was a teacher t- wrote to me recently and said they don't even let you stand. Right. They don't even let you stand. So oh, well, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a different world. I went to Holy Cross High School in Flushing, and I remember my dean. His name was Dean Gianuzzi, right? And he would literally be out in class. He'd be in the tree mm. seeing if you were cheating on a test, if you were talking in the back of the classroom or something when the nuns or the priests were up front and you were being disruptive. <laughs> then he'd come in and he'd hand you a pink slip and you knew you were going to detention. And what you had to do was write what you did, right? And it was one full sentence. It had to be a full sentence across the top of the page. 
and then he would make you write it 150 right. times. Right, I've been there, too. But you too. couldn't yeah. write it and just say, like, I, and all the way down to 150. You had to write the entire sentence, because mm-hmm. if you started cheating and writing it down, and I will, and you just keep going, he made you write it all over again. Now, in fairness, uh, the, according to the New York Post, there are some other allegations w- with respect to this principle. There's uh, one person claiming that the principle allegedly used discriminatory hiring and misused funds. But the aspect of the story that seems to be getting the most attention is that these students, these third graders, these fourth graders, these fifth graders were embarrassed and they didn't like their grades posted for everybody to see. My question for you is, do you think that's appropriate? Let's putting aside the discriminatory hiring allegation. Is this okay in your view to showcase the grades of struggling students in one, the hopes that they will get motivated to do better and two, that they'll be embarrassed into working a little harder. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Let me say hello to Bill in Connecticut. Hello, Bill. How are you? Yeah, I think if, as much as I'd love to see one of my friends paraded up there in class, I think it's pretty rough to do these days. Everybody's getting teased and kids are going through severe mental health issues these days. I think it's pretty rough. So, um, look, I I get that this approach is a very old school approach, right? And uh, it doesn't fit with the, uh, I'll call it the the coddling nature of of education these days. But do you think maybe that's part of what's wrong with education these days? That there there are so few standards, there are so few expectations that principals, that teachers actually have that, uh, I don't know, students aren't motivated to work as hard. No, I think they're under a lot of pressure to do a lot of stuff that mm. when I was a kid we never had to do community service and you know you got to co- talk about coddling you got to coddle every one of your peers which you know you shouldn't have to coddle everybody it's ridiculous and I think it's a real embarrassment that's kind of unnecessary if it was sports you know I could see you know the kid's not making his his block fast enough or he's not getting cut off the shortstop. Well, the short stuff's not cutting off second baseman or whatever. Um, I could see that because that would step you up to move faster and physically do something. But sometimes mentally, you know, I'm not a stupid guy, but I didn't do scholastically as great as my parents or I would have liked to have done. Um, so I think it's a lot of pressure already. And if the class sizes are, you know, 25 and up, then that's immediately 24 people that are going to, you know, give you the business. And I think who knows what his home life is like or, you know, what happened an hour ago. You know, who knows, I think, or she. Uh, But, uh, you know, I think it's a little over. All right. Fair enough, Bill. Bill, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. 833-969-4447. Or if you like to spell out phone numbers, it's Ted Wow Giggs. That's Ted Wow G-I-G-S. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hello. Hey, Jr. what's on your mind? Hey, how are you? Uh, good morning. Listen, you know what? I think that uh, at, at a young age like this, they probably should not be doing uh, reprimanding these kids. They, oh, they All they really know is reward. They don't really know how to uh, handle a little bit of embarrassment like that. But are the teachers, are the students allowed to do this to the teacher? Well, because no. Education systems, well, why not? Well, because they're third graders, right? I mean, how can you have a third grader um, critiquing the performance of a principal or a professional educator? I mean, in some respects, their test scores. Because, the, because, 
do you know why? You you said it earlier, even though you didn't want to allude to it, because they often are, you know, they're really not that qualified of a person sometimes. And well, now you have this woman who's having uh, questionable hiring practices and well, where, I, okay, you know, money again, going let, away. Let, let's let's pretend the um, questionable hiring practices let's aren't an issue here. Right. Um, let's pretend okay. that it's just an issue of showcasing the grades, because I guarantee you this is something that a lot of principals listening to us around the country are wondering if this is an effective method of motivating students. If it's just that. Right. It's just that. That's what we're talking about. Sure. Is that OK in your view? No, I really don't think it is, again, because I don't think that, you know, the qualification for a teacher has been also lowered throughout since you and I probably went to school and high school. I went to, I was raised through Catholic schools. I took a beating. I had to do uh, all types of detention, all types of embarrassing things. And that's right. You get put through the ringer. And you know what? A lot of times it's not motivating because once you can take it once and not get embarrassed, now you got to understand that there's almost no pleasing something. Well, I I hear that. Look, and I've had teachers like that as well, Jr. Thank you. Let me ask you, Chad, uh, because uh, there is there is always I always hear parents, teachers, administrators, everybody really complain about a lack of discipline. Right. But then you also see numbers that do suggest that anxiety and depression among young people is a real is a real problem. So how do you balance those two things? The need for discipline and the need to not have children be depressed and turn to maybe drugs, alcohol, and antisocial behavior. But let me let me back up for a second here. You know, when I when I answered before, yes, that's when you and I were going through school. That's what it was like, mm-hmm. right? They, you were. It was okay to be embarrassed. I think now, and I, I didn't go to Catholic school. And you by go the way. Catholic, I went right. to public but even school. there's great yeah. public schools, right? So even now, though, I, I think now and nowadays that. They have a better understanding of kids with disabilities. They have a better understanding for that. So I wouldn't in, – in, you, you have to hope that – there's a lot of factors. You have to hope that the school is doing the right thing, and they're putting all the kids that are at the same level in, in, a, in a class, right? Wouldn't you want to know, just like athletes, like that gentleman mentioned about the athletes, just like when we're in school too, it, now it, you want to make sure if I'm competing in a class with 25 other guys or kids, okay – I want to know what what how do I perform there, and if they put it up there, I feel comfortable with that. As long as I'm not, if I have a learning disability and I'm in a, class, in a regular class, you're just going to embarrass me. It'll make it worse for me, right? But if I'm in a class with other kids that are like-minded or at the same level, I want to know how I'm competing right. in, in that class. Exactly, I feel the same way. I um, you know, I feel the same way radio wise, mm-hmm. right? If uh, if I'm doing. Uh, you know, a 12 share, you know, I, I'd like all of our colleagues sure. to know it, right? Okay. Versus if I'm doing a two share, maybe I'd be a little bit more motivated to, mm-hmm. you know, to go ahead and, uh, I don't know, work a little harder, do something different topic-wise, do something different promotion-wise. Again, I recognize young people, it's a, it's a different ball game, but I think the, the same principle still applies. Uh, 833-969-4447. By the way, I want to give a, uh, I want to give sort of a pseudo shout-out to one of my colleagues here, uh, Greg Kelly, who does a great job uh, every afternoon, does a great show. The interview that we did yesterday with William Shatner is uh, getting a lot of attention. 
And Sid Rosenberg was kind enough to play a couple of clips from that interview. And uh, Greg Kelly was kind enough to play a couple of clips. And I would say the the part of it that a lot of people are taking note of, including me, is that uh, Shatner was kind enough to ask me to join him on stage when he is performing at this uh, screening of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan in February. But it was interesting. Greg was very kind to mention this interview and, and showcase it. But then he kind of seemed a little bit skeptical uh, about what Shatner was saying. And, you know, when Greg gets skeptical, he has sort of a a twinge in his voice, a certain sarcasm, which can be quite amusing, I have to say. This is uh, Greg Kelly on his program yesterday. Now, number one, Frank Morano is all those things, very knowledgeable, very entertaining. But there's something about that invitation. You think at at the age of 91, William Shatner is going to redo his act to involve um, a new sidekick, Frank Morano. And he does a great show, by the way, William Shatner over there at uh, NJ Pack. Uh, granted, maybe it's, I don't know. Now, I don't think Shatner was talking about redoing his whole show. I think he was having me basically up there to point to people and say, yes, you, what's your question? I have a feeling that's the extent of my role. I don't think it's a lot of, oh, we'll, you know, I'm not going to be juggling or doing ventriloquism or magic tricks as he explains uh, why those things crawl in people's ears in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I must say, I think Greg's skepticism was a little, a little misplaced there. Uh, by the way, congratulations to Greg Kelly on his uh, new book, which is getting a lot of attention, and hopefully we'll have him on soon to uh, to talk about it. It's getting uh, a lot of great reviews as well. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, uh, Frank. Uh, first, uh, Chad, say hello to uh, Gabby. Uh, wish her a happy new year <laughs> to me. You have a good one. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Uh, you know, the whole thing now is with anti-bullying. Uh, they say the bullying, uh, uh, the driving kids to suicide. Uh, I mean, if a kid's not doing well, I, I think handling it by bringing him in and, and talking to his parents or maybe getting him the help he needs. But to publicly humiliate him or to publicly post his scores where it might go where other students are going to bully him and hurt him uh, mentally, I just think it's wrong. I, I think it would be, be handled in a different way. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to that, uh, Neil. Thank you. I, I do think it all depends on how it's done, right? You'd know whether a, a student, a teacher, a principal is bullying or not. It's kind of like the Supreme Court's definition of pornography. We know it when we see it, right? So you know uh, whether a teacher is berating you for the sake of berating you or a principal is just trying to be mean or whether they're trying to show you that you're doing poorly in comparison to everybody else in the hopes that you improve and the hopes that you do better and give you the resources at the same time to do better. And uh, I really think that there's a, a big difference between bullying and publicly pointing out people's shortcomings. But maybe maybe I'm from uh, another era and maybe I'm not uh, caught up with uh, 20, 21st century mores. I don't know. Uh, 833-969-4447. Hey, by the way, speaking of skills that uh, children may not be learning today, we're going to talk with Bob Wolf in a minute. Bob Wolf is a fascinating guy. First of all, he has one of the best voices that I've ever heard. But he also has uh, devoted his life to helping people get skills beyond what you learn in school. Uh, Science is great. Technology is great. Engineering is great. Math is great. But 
If you go into a job interview and you can't look someone in the eye, if you don't know once you make a professional contact with someone how to make the next step in terms of facilitating further conversation with somebody, what good does having the best grades in science, technology, and math do? Well, Bob is on a mission to change the world in that respect. Uh, So we're going to get into that. And uh, a lot of other fun things that we're going to get into throughout the course of the program. The Golden Globes were last night. the 80th Golden Globes. I tried to watch it, and, you know, it's funny. I watch these awards shows now in the hopes that something weird is going to happen, that, uh, you know, I was waiting for Will Smith to to smack someone. I was waiting for them to read the wrong movie as the Best Picture winner. I was waiting for, you know, something. But really, the portions I saw, first of all, I didn't see any of the movies that won, really. So that kind of took away from uh, a little bit of my enjoyment. But also... um, the only real unscripted aspect of it was one of all these award winners, once the music would start playing, when you're supposed to wrap up your speech, right? And uh, and Chad knows with that, he tried to rush me off the stage when I was uh, presenting Curtis with an award. And that's to, to present, not even receive. You're supposed to wrap up. And so what one award winner did is he shouted back at the pianist, the pianist and he said, no, 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 shut up. I'm not stopping. And then when one guy did that, they all did that. So that was the only thing resembling something unscripted. But other than that, it seemed to be pretty pretty boring, honestly, yeah. quite frankly. Did you watch I, any of it, I Chad? agree. I agree. Yeah, it, it, to be quite honest, I was very confused. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and again, I'm sure a lot of great movies and a lot of great TV shows, but uh, I haven't really seen much of them. So I feel like uh, maybe that's part of the reason you're seeing the ratings for a lot of these award shows go down, because yeah. they're celebrating movies that people hasn't, haven't seen. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting uh, Jennifer Coolidge. Oh, from, yeah. uh, she, she, she she was great. She did a great job. You know, it's yeah. funny. Um, my wife and I were watching, and she said that she thinks Jennifer Coolidge has aged really well yes. uh, from 20 years ago. She looks the same. I, I agree. I yeah. agree. And I also thought her she was she was she was speaking from the heart, and mm. it was it was good. She did it. Yeah. That was funny. Nice I think uh, I was sorry that Steve Martin didn't win for only murders in the building. I was hoping to see yeah. him get an award or something. All right, Paul, uh, what's on your mind this morning? I'm on, Frank. You're Sorry on, Paul. That. I couldn't hear you. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> good, good morning, brother. Good morning. Morning. But what that teacher did with the grades promotes competition. It, it promotes kids to excel more. They, I mean, if anybody has a problem with that, that's right up there when everybody gets this, uh, a trophy just for showing up. It does nothing. It, it keeps you stagnant when you don't have competition. Yeah. It, 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 that teacher was 100% right. Paul, I, I think Chad and I are kind of both on the same page as you are. But what about what Neil said? What about what Neil said in that uh, we're in an era where young people are dealing with anxiety, depression, and uh, they're, they're worried about suicide and drugs and things of that nature. And if a student is embarrassed because of their grades or something like that, the best way that, that's that's only going to lead to more antisocial behavior. And the best way to handle that is privately meet with the student, meet with the parents. What do you say to somebody like that? I was just going to say. I was just going to say that, handle it privately with the parent. I was just, just thinking that because if, if, if what, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And if you got a couple of students who are having anxiety about their grades, parents got to step in, maybe get some tutoring. My daughter was having a problem with math. And uh, in, in her class, it was the same scenario. So we, we, had to, we had to get somebody to help us. She's doing better now. But you, you, you can't um, worry about the few because 
Otherwise, where are we going to be as a country? You're not going to grow. No, nobody's going to yeah. nobody's going to look to push forward and excel just because a couple are worried about their grades. The parents have to step in at that point. And uh, Paul, of course, you know whose quote that is: "The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few." Or the one William Shatner, baby. That's William right. Shatner, That's right, brother. brother. <laughs> I'll, I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you in Red Bank, hopefully, for the Star Trek Two screening. All right, get back to work, Paul. Get back to work. All right, eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. Bob Wolf is here. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the skills that not just young people, but people in general aren't getting and what we can do about it. A lot more to get to. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. My dear Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight with so- Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Obviously, if you've uh, listened to this program, uh, we talk about any variety of uh, you know, weird cryptozoological mythology, um, the Loch Ness Monster, the Yeti, Bigfoot, you name it. But we're not talking about werewolves today. We're talking with Bob Wolf. Bob Wolf is what they call a life skills educator. By the way, I like that when Chad's here, these guys are on their A-game with the, with the sound effects. Uh, Bob Wolf is a life skills educator and business development consultant. He spent four decades helping to build startup businesses, which became number one. And uh, you'll hear when you his voice that uh, it's no surprise that he's a, a terrific voiceover actor. And he has this program called Hope Skills that helps students and graduates and adults learn skills which they need to meet and learn and learn from in order to uh, further their own goals. Bob, it has been too long. Happy New Year. Well, thank you, Frank, and that's a, a wonderful entry introduction. I appreciate it, and I wish I could do that werewolf sound, but if I did, it would probably scare people to death. So, uh, <laughs> so hey, Bob. Yeah, I, 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 I won't attempt to do that. Uh, Bob, for people that haven't heard our previous conversations over the years, uh, what are the skills that you've been presenting to schools, to students, to teachers, to parents for the last couple of decades, and uh, why are they so important? Well, the skills are just very simply the skills of uh, making your first impression, uh, interpersonal skills, communication skills, presentation skills, and the last one is um, selling skills. And the reality is those are the skills that we all use every single day of our life in some way, in every kind of job, in any type of work that we do. What's people the big deal? What's the big deal? Why do we need to know uh, how to have a conversation with people? If you know the material, uh, let's say you're a lawyer, uh, let's say you're a doctor, if you know the material and can, um, can deal with the knowledge that's in whatever field you're in, why isn't that enough? Why do you need to learn how to converse with people, look folks in the eye, et cetera? 
Well, if this is my opinion. I heard you say something earlier with your prior guest, and the reality is we are from another generation, uh, Frank, and, and I'm happy to say that I am and you are. And the reality is that, that being being able to have knowledge, information, data in our heads is irrelevant if we can't communicate it and transition that information into knowledge. And knowledge and information are very different. So being able to uh, make a first impression so, so someone wants to listen to you, cares to have a, an interest in what you're saying, and your ability to say it in a way that makes them go, wow. I didn't know that. And you do that extremely well when you converse and have questions and answers from your guests. So, Bob, uh, one of the things we've seen, especially over the last decade, is an explosion of social media. It used to be maybe a young person had a MySpace page or a Friendster account. Now, um, almost every young person that I encounter, really I'm thinking of people under the age of 19, but probably it could be expanded really to under the age of 30, their lives are totally governed by social media. I spend a lot of time thinking about how I'm going to produce the four hours of this radio show. The folks that are under the age of 30, they're basically perpetually producing a show just for social media. But there's been some concern, and we covered this earlier in the week, that the use of social media by people in general, but especially young people, has actually made these folks antisocial. Has that hindered the development of the kind of skills you're talking about? Wow. Well, uh, you've done a great job explaining one of the reasons I've been doing this for 22 years. Not only has it hindered, the reality is we, you and I, what we want to do, we want, we want people to, to see, hear, and feel what we're saying, doing, and acting like. And none of that is really possible when you're looking at a screen. Only when you've met someone and spending their time and your time reading their body language and their facial expressions and listening to their tone of voice when they speak with energy about something. And yes, we have a major problem today. And the schools have decided to be, they better begin looking at what's going on with this social media epidemic, which is causing kids to be anxious, stressed, depressed, and yes, sadly, even suicidal. Mm. Uh, talking with Bob Wolf, he's a life skills educator, business development consultant, and he's uh, the guy that has developed something called Hope Skills that helps students learn skills that they need to meet their life challenges. So, Bob, aside from what you're doing, are schools not teaching this? If you go to a high school, if you go to junior high school, good school, bad school, do they not learn these skills, like how to go on a job interview? Well, I believe schools are working hard through their CTE programs and other programs that are out there to infuse this kind of information into their curriculum. Yet, as we both know, um, there's mandated curriculum that schools much teach. And so what I've tried to do when I started this program 22 years ago is add something to supplement what the schools are trying to do. And we both know also that listening to your program and your other guests prior to mine tonight, um, we kids, we all learn from stories. And we need to hear stories from other people who have been through the issue of depression and anxiety and stress. I, I've been there. Uh, I've been there in a, in, in a way in my life where I never thought I would be successful because I wasn't a good student. My father used to say to me, you're not going to make anything of yourself because you don't get good grades, Bob. And I learned that that's not true. The reality is when I learned how to speak to people and 
connect with people and relate to people and have them see things in me that I don't see in myself, which a lot of these kids today are dealing with because they're looking at a screen only. They're not hearing someone like you and I having a conversation where we feel passionate about what we're trying to do. Um, this anxiety, stress, and pressure is causing serious problems. And frankly, it's more with girls. We've got three granddaughters. And um, they're, they're dealing with this thing in, in their own way. But the only way that these kids can really deal with it is to express it verbally. So you think that, just put it on a screen. that these uh, five skills, the hope skills, they can actually help reduce stress, anxiety, and depression in the kind of anxiety that students are experiencing today? Uh, yes, they can. I, I've talked to professionals. I've talked to Internet professionals. I've talked to psychologists. I've talked to family planners. And the reality is they understand that we need to do something to balance, not to not do away with. I don't want to do away with social media that we know it today as screens and keyboards. They just want to balance. They want these kids to have the ability to put something on a screen, but more important, to be able to look someone in the face read their body language, and say, I'm having a problem. Can you help me? And yes, these five skills are the skills necessary to connect and engage with other people so they get the general, genuine interest in what the feelings are, not seeing them on a screen, but hearing them, seeing them, and getting them to see what they act like. You're talking with Bob Wolf. You can check out his website at hopeskills.com. Uh, uh, Bob, you're the definition of a, a people person. The last uh, couple times that I've had you on the radio, you're always very kind to send a, a nice thank you note, which uh, rarely uh, have I seen uh, any guests do in radio these days. Um, what is the number? You've said that people are students' number one resource in life. I think that could probably be extrapolated to adults as well, right? Well, it not only is right, but in my opinion, you're, I watched the uh, awards program with my wife last night, as you did, as you mentioned earlier in the show. And one of the things I said to my wife was, listen to all of the recipients compliment the people who have helped them become on the stage that night. I was, see that, I got that out of that mm-hmm. show. I don't, what, what they do is fine, but how many people thanked dozens and dozens of people for their position in life today? And um, yeah, people are, they're, they're not only kids' greatest resource, they're your greatest resource. We wouldn't be talking together if we didn't have a mutual friend who decided to connect us because they felt we had something to share with your listeners and anyone that cares about making an improved society because of the people connection in it. it very quickly, Bob, give me the five skills again that you're emphasizing that people are, uh, that uh, schools are, are neglecting. What are they? Give me the five. Thank you. And they build on each other, Frank. Their first impression skills, interpersonal skills, communication skills, presentation skills, and that one that all those skills are used for, and that's to selling skills. If people want to get in touch with you, learn more about what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Is to go to the website? They can go to the website or they can make a phone call. They can call me and set a conversation with me because, yes, I am a people person and so are you. But we want all these kids to not only be a technology person, they need to be a people person too, Frank. Hopeskills.com is the website. Bob Wolf is the man. Bob, thank you. It's always a treat to talk with you, and I'll look forward to our next conversation. 
Thank you, Frank. Have a wonderful day, and I wish you and your family a happy, healthy New Year. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Uh, Bob Bye-bye. Wolf, HopeSkills.com. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. In just a moment, there is something that happens to me all the time, which I feel like doesn't happen to anyone else. I'm going to tell you what it is. And uh, maybe it's my perception. I'll tell you what it is, uh, and we'll take your calls as well. 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Up in the morning and out to school. Teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard, hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Well done, Mathways. Well done. Uh, Chuck Berry, school day. Uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A lot of people emailing me, by the way, over this uh, principal situation and her decision to post certain grades. And if you want to weigh in as well via email, you can. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. Also getting a lot of people weighing in on this Texas situation about whether it was self-defense or murder. So that's interesting. But uh, very exciting. You know who's going to be here tomorrow? is uh, Steve Gutenberg. Now, Steve Gutenberg is just terrific. He's one of my uh, favorite uh, favorite actors. He's one of my favorite personalities. We had him on the show about a year ago, and it turned out, you know, sometimes you meet an actor, like Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro is a great actor. You ever see him in an interview? He's the most boring person in the world. He's incredibly dull. He almost sounds like he's asleep during these interviews. Steve Gutenberg is uh, somebody that's a real... Um, he's just got great energy, a real up and coming guy and uh, not up and coming, but he's a real, um, positive energy about him. And so he was on last, last year, we were talking about bagels and a whole bunch of other things. And so, uh, Jennifer, uh, Jennifer, our guest booker who helps with, you know, guests and all sorts of other things. She reaches out to me a week ago and she says, uh, well, you know, do you want to get Steve Gutenberg? back on the show. He's actually going to be in New York. Maybe you can actually have him in studio. I said, absolutely. That'd be great. So as soon as Steve Gutenberg was confirmed, you know, I have a weakness for certain collectible items, right? There's two things that I really, there's a bunch of things I enjoy collecting, but one of them is bobblehead dolls and the other is signed books, right? If you walk into my house, any room you go to, you will find signed books. And uh, but generally they're personalized signed books, mostly to me, but occasionally um, I'll, I'll find a, a book that was signed to someone else. Uh, for instance, Michael Costanza, who was supposedly the basis for George Costanza. That's a story for another day, has a book um, that he signed to Sean Hannity, which somehow ended up in my possession. Pat Buchanan signed a copy of one of his books to Don Imus. Somehow that book ended up in my possession. And I didn't steal them, honestly. But 
I look back and I look at all the things that people wrote to me in these books that they signed, and it's really meaningful and it's real fun. For instance, Donald Trump wrote an inscription in one of his books to me, and you know what it says? That he wrote, "Say hi to Curtis." That's what it says. Say hi to Curtis, Donald Trump. <laughs> and very, so, I thought, hey, it would be so much fun to get a copy of Steve Gutenberg's book, which is over ten years old. It's called the Gutenberg Bible, right? And I said, not only will I be able to get this book signed, but I will be able to um, find some interesting stories that he's told in the book that he probably has forgotten that he told, and I'll get them to tell. I'll get him to tell them to me on the air, right? And I think that'll be a lot of fun. So I ordered this book right away from Amazon. And you, you remember the lengths that I went to to get Tom Golisano's book before the Columbus Day Parade so I could get him to sign it for me. And sure enough, I am watching and waiting for the Steve Gutenberg book. And it's scheduled to arrive today, meaning it's going to arrive after I get to talk with Steve Gutenberg because I'm going to talk with Steve uh, when he's in studio, I think right after our show pretty much. So I will have just missed getting this book. Now, so what I did last night was I said, all right, let me maybe go to the library and see if there's a library anywhere in the area that has this book. So I start calling libraries. And this is exactly what I need to be doing, right, when uh, uh, crying, crying one-year-old, complaining wife, a uh, radio show that still needs four hours of production. I'm now calling individual branches of the library. And I said, all right, is there any branch that has this book? And there's one branch that has it. And uh, I toyed with asking uh, Kenneth or Alex to come in five hours early and stop in at this one branch to see if they have it. But then I said, all right. I'm not really going to be able to get him to sign a library book. So what I did was, and I never do this because I'm a paper book guy, not a digital book guy. I download the book on the um, the the Kindle, the e-reader. I have a Kindle app. So now I at least have the knowledge from the book, but I can't really have him sign the book. So my wife suggested maybe I should have him sign a random piece of paper and just insert it in the book once this book arrives today, we'll see how that goes. But I am looking forward to the interview very much because he's uh, he's a real character. Uh, so that's uh, coming up tomorrow. Want to encourage you uh, to follow our Facebook page as well. All the articles we're talking about this principle, uh, this uh, self defense situation in Texas, all the articles that we've been talking about, you can find on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's facebook.com slash Morano fan. And you can give us a call, 833 969 That's uh, 833-969-4447. By the way, you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, follow uh, the station, 77WABC, Red Apple Podcast Network. But you can follow me, at Frank Morano. Here's what's interesting. I, am a, I use TweetDeck. You ever use TweetDeck? What TweetDeck is, it does a lot of interesting things. You can time your tweets to go out at certain times. So if I'm asleep at 10 a.m., I can still make sure the link to our show goes out at 10 a.m. or whatever whatever time. You can also see a whole bunch of different things at once. Well, I don't know if anybody else uses TweetDeck, and I don't know if this is one of the things that's changing in the Elon Musk regime, but I've been trying to log on to TweetDeck since last night. Nothing. 
I can't log on to TweetDeck. It says upstream connect error or disconnect research b- reset before headers. Reset reason connection failure. Now, I don't know what any of that means. May as well be in Klingon. But um, I think that uh, I don't know if it's uh, the hackers that are unhappy with Elon Musk taking aim at the TweetDeck users. I don't know if it's a change in what Elon Musk is doing moving away from TweetDeck or if it's all these people that have been getting laid off and fired from Twitter that were somehow responsible for TweetDeck. But it's very difficult for me to go back to just regular Twitter when I'm used to TweetDeck. So uh, these are first world problems. I realize that. But it is what it is. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Let me tell you what's coming up uh, next hour. Uh, in addition to the um, – yeah, hey, you know, we're they're talking about banning the gas stove. So uh, I discovered something yesterday. That actually might make financial sense for a lot of a lot of people. And I brought this up with my wife. Needless to say, it went over like a lead balloon uh, with respect to gas stoves and alternatives to gas stoves. What you say makes no sense. I, I will bring that to your attention in just a bit. And finally, just when you thought that I could never win an argument within the Morano household. My wife acknowledged to me yesterday, remember I was telling you about these ants that have invaded our bathroom, which is just a wonderful thing in the middle of January, these little tiny little ants that are all over our bathroom. And so I got six of these ant traps, and the idea behind these ant traps is the ant goes into the trap, takes a little bit of the bait, then it goes back to the colony and kills everybody. Like that episode of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation where Hugh uh, is supposed to uh, kill the whole Borg collective, but then uh, Picard decides he doesn't want to commit mass genocide, even of a race like the Borg. I have no problem killing all these ants that are invading our bathroom. Because i got to tell you, it's the most weird thing in the world. It's not weird. It's disgusting. You go to pick up your bathrobe or you go to reach for your toothbrush and you have to say excuse me to all these ants that have formed a conga line on the way to your toothbrush. Now, finally, I have been saying for at least a week and a half that I think these ant traps are working. Right. Uh, Haven't seen any ants in our bathroom. Not my Aunt Madeline, not my Aunt Camille, not my Aunt Connie, nobody. So I have finally gotten my wife to acknowledge because remember, she was saying the reason you're not seeing them is because I'm killing them all. There's no reduction in ants. That's what she's been saying. So now, as of yesterday, she finally acknowledged to me, "Okay, it's working. The ants are reduced in the bathroom. But here's the, the problem now. I've discovered ants in our dining room and in my office. So we have solved the ant problem in the, you know, main restroom, which is where the big problem was. But they apparently have migrated to other parts of the house. So that's what we're dealing with today. So we'll see where it goes. I've installed a bunch of other uh, ant traps now throughout the rest of the house. Hopefully those ant traps are, uh, are effective. I, you know, that's one of those things where you see those commercials and they look effective and then you do the research and they seem effective. But, you know, we still got ants. That's the bottom line. All right. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. If you ever miss any portion of the show, by the way, you've got to subscribe 
to our podcast, The Other Side of Midnight. And a big thank you to everybody that's been leaving such kind reviews on iTunes and elsewhere because that helps other people find the show. But if you uh, are somebody that tunes in when you're uh, having a difficult time sleeping or when you get up to go to the bathroom or whatever, you need to listen to the program in the in its entirety by uh, subscribing to the podcast. So you can just go to iTunes, Spotify, whatever, any podcast app, and just search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hit the subscribe button, and then you will instantly get the uh, the podcast downloaded to your phone each and uh, and every day. And I am looking forward to talking with Steve Gutenberg tomorrow. I think that's going to be uh, a great deal of uh, of fun. I didn't catch any other surprises at the uh, at the Golden Globes, though. Unless I, I again, I, I might have missed uh, an award or two. But I'm reading some of the articles. It looks like the Golden Globes was kind of I don't know, kind of uneventful. Uh, to say the least. Um, and, you, you know, Hollywood every day, or at, at the day after one of these award shows, whether it's the Golden Globes, the Emmys, the Oscars, there are all these articles, oh, ratings lowest number in X number of years. And there's always a lot of soul searching about how they can get back to its for, their former glory. I think the biggest factor, as I was saying to Chad before, is that people haven't seen the movies, by and large. They used to honor movies that everybody has seen. Now they honor movies that I feel like nobody has heard of. So um, I think that's a factor. And the other factor is I don't think the show itself is that entertaining. right? You used to have great uh, people hosting these shows, uh, comedians like Ricky Gervais, or or even that year that uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler did it. I think they did it a couple of times. But now, I don't know, the show itself, it just comes across as stale and rehearsed, which is the opposite of what I think uh, live television uh, should be. You didn't watch any of that, right, Matt? That's not your thing. No, not anymore. Yeah. There's, no, like I said, there's no need to anymore. Right, right exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, when we come back, is the gas-powered stove going the way of the dodo bird? And I'll tell you how you can earn $854 by getting rid of your gas-powered stove. I'm not joking about that. We got the $1,000 minute coming your way. We got 15 seconds of fame and a whole lot more. Until next hour, in the immortal words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of Midnight, I'm Frank Morano. Well, could gas, at least cooking with gas, soon become the equivalent of lead paint or asbestos inside your walls? Well, there is a growing movement to ban the gas 
stove. I'm not joking about this. I know it sounds like shtick and the kind of thing that I would be setting up a joke over. No. Cooking with gas may soon be as unimaginable in this country as painting with lead or building with asbestos. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission is considering a ban on natural gas stoves, which, although they're used in 40% of U.S. kitchens, according to Bloomberg, they emit a cocktail of air pollutants. Studies illustrating the hazards of gas stoves have proliferated for 50 years. And I brought this up with my wife today, and uh, it went nowhere. She basically said that uh, you're an alarmist, you're not looking at the data. Okay, this is what's being reported. Based on EPA and World Health Organization standards, gas stoves produce, this is what they say, it's not me saying this, unsafe levels of carbon monoxide and nitrogen dioxide that can lead to respiratory illness, cancer, and cardiovascular disease. And one of the biggest concerns, and this is the one that I raised with my wife, is asthma. A study released last month in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health revealed that gas stoves contribute to 12% of U.S. childhood asthma cases. But many types of indoor cooking can emit dangerous particles. Um, So I don't think this is going to happen tomorrow or even next year because the gas industry is very powerful. They call it big flame. You know, they have uh, big tobacco or... uh, I don't know, big soccer, whomever. According to Mother Jones, which is a, you know, it's a progressive media outlet, Big Flame has tried to convince Americans of the superiority of gas stoves for decades and has turned up, pardon the pun, the heat in recent years. They even have, and I had no idea about this, industry-sponsored Instagram influencers that have shared posts of themselves Cooking on gas stoves. Can you imagine? I didn't know that. With uh, extremely unsubtle captions like, did you know natural gas provides better cooking results? Pretty nifty, huh? One pro-gas group, just one, one pro-gas group spent $300,000 on a millennial-geared campaign in 2020. So they want the millennials cooking with gas. In fa- By the way, you ever hear that expression, cooking with gas? You know where that comes from? Well, the reason you've heard someone, including me just now, say cooking with gas is because of the gas industry's lobbying. Gas executives pushed the phrase into Daffy Duck cartoons and Bob Hope's comedy act as far back as the 1930s to combat the rise of electric stoves. Now, I don't know whether they're going to ban gas stoves. Um, but I brought this up with my wife, and I, in doing some research for this segment, I learned something. You remember the Inflation Reduction Act, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act from last year? Well, what was buried in this 2,000-page behemoth bill, which no one really read, including the people that voted on it, Americans can get rebates of up to $840 to replace their gas stove with an electric one. So I said this to Rachel. I said, hey, I don't know if they're going to ban this or not. But look, if we get an electric stove instead of a gas stove, 
It's $840. And she said, well, an electric stove costs more than that. She goes and pulls it up, the, the prices. She said, it's at least $1,000. I said, all right, so we're paying $160 to make sure our son doesn't have asthma. It sounds like a pretty good deal to me. And she said, you don't care about this because you don't cook and you never cook. And I do all the cooking. Electric stoves are horrible. And you're going to have us pay $160 for a cooking device that I don't want and that doesn't work and that will burn our food. And it's true, but when I was living on my own as a bachelor, I had an electric stove. And honestly, and I I didn't grow up with an electric stove, but it was like you had to kind of guess when it was on or not, right? You, you didn't always know what kind of job it was doing heating. The, the gas stoves, you could see if it's a big flame, a not-so-big flame. I am curious if you knew about this $840 rebate. So I, I'm dead serious about this. Inflation Reduction Act gives you an $840 rebate if you replace your gas stove with an electric one. Does what I just said, the um, data from the EPA, the information from from Bloomberg, and the fact that you're now going to get $840 if you replace your gas stove with an electric one, does what I just said, does that do anything? to alter your decision to switch from gas to electric? That's question one. Now, question two is, do you share my wife's frustrations about the difficulties of cooking on an electric stove versus a gas stove? That is the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. Matt, what are you? Are you gas or electric? All the way gas. Yeah, and uh, do you do a lot of cooking? Yeah. You do? Oh, yeah. And I would never... I grew up with a gas stove, and you just said that you grew up with a gas stove. I did, So do you have asthma? Do you have any health problems? I don't. I mean, not that I know of. I mean, I'm I'm a little shorter than I I expected to be. (laughs) You think that's from the gas? Yeah, I I don't know. My dad is 6'2". I've been waiting my whole life to grow, (laughs) and uh, I'm still waiting. So maybe that plays a role. Could be. I mean, what about your brothers? They're, they're tall. They're tall, and tall. they grew up with the gas stove exactly. as well. So I, I don't know if I could blame the yeah, gas I don't, for that. I don't, I don't like electric stoves. You, you're right. You can't tell when right. they're on unless they're all the way high and red hot. That's the only way you can tell well, that what it's about on. this $840? Is that doing anything for you? No. 840 bucks. That's like nothing. All right. Fine. And you, like you said, you, you still have to buy another stove. Well, that's what Rachel said. And yeah. So you're not, what are you getting, 100, like 160 bucks? It's nothing. Right. I'd rather cook on a gas stove. Eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. That's eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. I do want to mention this uh, as well. So we've been talking about. I'm going to get to your calls in a moment. We've been talking about this Facebook group that we have, and the Facebook group is designed to be fun. Right? It's designed to be a place because when I would grow up listening to all my favorite hosts, the thing that I hated most is when the show was over. And all I would do is look for people that I could continue having a conversation about the show with. So the Facebook group, which you can just search um, Murano Radio Fans and Haters, whether you like what we're doing, whether you don't like what we're doing, it's meant to be a place to continue a conversation about the show. Now, some people have gotten a little carried away, and okay, that's fine. But um, (laughs) my friend Craig was writing to me. He says, I love how some of your most passionate group members join and quit the group on a vicious cycle. I really think a segment getting to know these people would be fascinating. 
And uh, he writes, I really think Gerald Cantor might be the most rational person in the group. Now, Gerald Cantor, I can't decipher anything that he says. He just posts these things that are clearly geared towards one or two people and puts it out there for everybody. But um, I mention this because when you encounter someone on social media, whether it's in my group or elsewhere, that you don't exactly see eye to eye with, there are a couple of different ways to pursue this. And we have one person in our group that wrote to me. She sent me an email, and you can email me as well, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And this is what she said. Hi, Frank. There was a woman in your group I had some uneasy exchanges with in the past. She commented in some cruel ways about how I was posting. But then I noticed that she was suffering from cancer. So I turned around our conversations to ask about her from time to time. And from then on, our conversations were very cordial, even nice. She seemed very appreciative that I cared, and I truly did. No one deserves a cancer diagnosis. Let me pause there. So do you see what this person did? Rather than continue this idiotic tit-for-tat complaining about what someone's posting on social media, she took someone that was mean to her, and she just basically asked about her and said, good luck, and I hope you're doing well. So they became friendly, even though they started in a very antagonistic manner. Well, this is, I'm continuing with this email here. I was just noticing that I hadn't seen her post in a while, so I checked. It seems that she passed away in November. Very sad, and judging from her pictures, I don't think she was very old. Maybe late 50s, early 60s. Anyway, I just thought I'd let you know, her name was Linda Horn, and I just wrote to her daughter, Tracy Horn, on her mom's Facebook page. Very sad. Now, I am sure a lot of you also interacted with Linda Horn, and I remember some of her posts as well. And she was a big listener to this show. And as uh, this person said, it's always sad whenever anybody dies, especially at a young age, especially from cancer. But whenever it's a listener from our show, it's always a little bit more sad. And and I'm um, I'm not being a jerk about that. I mean that because I really have come to view the listeners of this show, the people that work on the show, the people that are guests on the show, as a kind of uh, extended family. In fact, I'll be honest with you, there are things about uh, my own life that I share with you that I never tell my family, my mom, uh, my wife, my brothers. They're always saying, I have to listen to the show to find out what's going on in your life, and that's true. Uh, So I was very sorry to see that she passed away, but for those of you that had interacted with Linda, I'm sure if you search her um, and you want to send a message to her family, you can do it on Facebook. Just search Linda Horn. All right, 833-969-4447. Gas versus electric versus other. You know, I'm a third-party candidate guy, so maybe there's a third-party candidate in the mix. I don't know if there are any solar-powered stoves that are uh, are marketable anywhere. Let me begin with uh, Joel in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Joel. Hi, Frank. Joel, what's Thank on you your mind? Thank you for the show. Great show. Sure. Um, I just wanted to say I'm a very pro-electric stove. And uh, a few things here. First of all, they don't cost $1,000. You can get a very nice stove for less than $1,000. Secondly, they cook faster. They get hot very quickly. And also, it's safer. It's safe. It doesn't have a flame coming out. It's a flat surface. And, yes, you can see when it's on because now they have these uh, um, the, the, stove, the stove top which lights up when it's hot. And it has a light. It has a red light to think it's hot. You know, it's funny that you mentioned safety. And putting aside what I mentioned about carbon monoxide and pollutants and asthma, 
Um, what do you mean by that when when you say it's safer? What do you mean by that exactly? It, there's no there's no flame shooting out from the top, and it's safer probably for kids. And it, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, you're not going to have about yeah. about seven or eight years ago. There was a, a no, maybe less than that, maybe six years ago. There was a, a building that exploded in Manhattan. I think it was in the village, and it turned out that it exploded. Uh, it was gas related. And it was exploded due to a gas leak. And our owner, and he wasn't our owner at the time, but uh, John Katsimatidis, who's in the energy business, who's in the oil business and so forth, he wrote to me and he said, that's what happens with gas. You never see that with oil. And he listed a whole bunch of other alternative heating sources. And he said, you never hear stories about uh, this building exploded because they had oil heat. He says, you always see that with gas heat. And it's interesting to me, I, I never thought about it when it comes to cooking and stoves but uh that's a that's a fair point joel the safety factor so you say to the mats of the world to the rachel moranos of the world they just kind of kind of get used to cooking with electric and they'll be fine absolutely and you get used very quickly because in, and honestly it in, in earnest it works very quickly it works very nicely too well thank you very much appreciate that uh one person sent me an sms text message here and you could do that as well by uh Messaging me at 8168Morano. Frank, when you cook on an electric stove, the meat tastes different. It doesn't taste well. That's interesting. I am, uh, I'm a little surprised to hear that. What does it taste like? Electricity, right? Um, Alex Barnard of uh, Livestream Crimes fame, uh, he says gas stove all the way too. But in our house in Pennsylvania, we have an electric stove. And while it works fine and I've grown accustomed to using it, gas is better. Well, not according to the safety reasons that we're citing, not according to ecological reasons. And uh, nobody's given you $840 in form in the form of a rebate to buy a gas stove to replace your electric one, Alex. 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. I spent the last seven years of my working career selling stoves both electric and gas. And from a user perspective, I prefer gas because you have more control over the cooking temperature uh, when you're like frying something or whatever. But from a safety perspective, I, I do have to say electric is better. If, if you must cook with gas, I suggest you get a hood that vents outside, which you probably can have being that you live in a home as opposed to an apartment. You know, you know the type that goes over the stove. That yeah, yeah, I, I think we have one of those. Actually, we have one of those. All right. Well, then that that's definitely an, uh, makes it safer. But um, I would recommend a, a newer type of cooking. It's called induction, which you can look up. The only limitation with induction is that you need to have magnetic cookware like copper or or something like that. It doesn't work with nonstick, but it gives you the same control um, over the um, temperature that you have with gas. And it's much safer. So, it, but it's more—it's actually more expensive too. So that's one drawback. But yeah, induction is something people should look into. I—I I like it, David. Thank you. Induction, induction. Uh, I don't know that there's any rebates being given out for induction either. Eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. We got the thousand dollar minute coming up in about ten minutes, so you can start uh, getting your brain cells ready for your chance to try and win a thousand dollars by answering ten trivia questions in sixty seconds. Robert, uh, what's on your mind? Hi, Frank. Hey, Robert. Uh, this is 
environmental. See, terrorism. it sounds like I took Robert by surprise there. He's waiting on hold for a while, and then it sounds like I took him by surprise. Oh, no. No. Um, did you hear that Peter Buttigieg wants all electric cars, EVs, and also hybrids in the future to have a kill switch feature where the government can turn your car off anytime, whenever they want, for any reason? This is another example of this climate change agenda. Sometimes I wish I had a kill switch on radio. You know what I mean, Robert? Well, think about it. If you lose electric, you can't cook. You won't be able to eat. Robert, thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, 833-969-4447. 833-969-4447. Chris is in Warwick. Hello, Chris. Hey, hi. How you doing, Frank? I'm hanging in there. Um, Good. Now, you're going to convert from gas to electric. I'm in favor of electric because I, I usually use it to heat my house now. I open up the oven like we used to do in the apartments in Brooklyn. But when well, you convert, I don't think they recommend that, pay. by the way. No matter what your well, uh, heating situation or your or gas situation, I don't think they recommend heating your apartment with an oven. Well, if it's safer to do it with the electric because the gas isn't isn't going through the house. But my But my point is, if you're going to convert, you got to have an electrician come in and put a new run in for the electric stove. You can't just plug an electric stove into the wall. It's two twenty, so you got to add like another fifteen hundred bucks, I gotcha. thousand dollars to have the electrician come in. I got gotcha. you. All right. Well, hey, look. So maybe it's a maybe. Look, it's clearly a non-starter in our house because uh, because if Rachel's not buying into it, then it's unlikely to uh, <laughs> unlikely to occur. Chris, uh, thank you. Corey is in Florida. Hello there, Corey. Hey, Frank. What's... Yeah, I'm just starting to get used to this electric stoves. They're horrible. I think. Uh, if you go to any restaurant, they're going to have uh, propane stoves. Um, we just can't get them in most of the neighborhoods. So, And they're extremely dangerous, especially for children, because you can't see the flame. It could oh, so you, you think the electric degrees. is more dangerous? Especially for children or even adults. I mean, there's only a little red light that says that it's hot. And even when that light goes off, that thing could still be 190 degrees. Mm. And you just see this flat surface like it's a countertop. You go put something, your hand down on it or whatever, easily catch fire. Whereas you see the flames, you're not going to put you know, let any kind of paper or plastic near it. And it doesn't cook as well. It just just doesn't. We hate it. Us transplants. All right. Thank you, Corey. Mike in Pennsylvania. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about uh, Pennsylvania electric uh, stoves there. What's your situation over there, Mike? Well, I got natural gas stove, and that's what I would have. See, every 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 fuel is different for, for each application, okay? You want gas because that, that guy who just was on just before said, 
if there's ever a blackout or whatever, how do people cook? Okay? Right. Well, they wouldn't fair. be able to cook. All right? You couldn't even have you couldn't even have the Chinese restaurants cooking if you made them all electric. So that ends that scenario. Well, wh- why all, why are you specifying the Chinese restaurants specifically? Why not? Well, I'm saying well, well, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying I'm I'm in the business, okay? Of of fuel and all, right? And but the, but I mean, you could have just as easily said you can't even have the Mexican restaurants cooking. Well, I'm just curious just why you picked so Chinese takeout. No, okay, no, gotcha. I, I meant takeout. Okay, right, fair so I, I generalized it too quick. Gotcha. But if you had a blackout, you know, uh, the restaurants couldn't even cook because they'd all be electric. Second of all, as far as gas heat, gas heat's good for smaller homes. When you get into the bigger homes, like I have a place. Uh, where I live on the 24th floor, that they decided to go strictly gas. Well, let me tell you something. Christmas weekend, you had to put a parker on in the living room. Well, again, nobody's talking about doing away with gas heat. The only thing that they're uh, they're talking about is potentially banning the gas stove. No, 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 no. No, they're talking about banning gas. They're talking about anything gas. Anything Anything gas. gas. But you know what? And you know what gets me? Anything that has a flame. Anything with a flame, but you know what wears me? You'll see all these environmentalists and all. They'll be lined up outside taxis and John's Pizzeria. <laughs> Man, you can't get no more fossil fuel than that coal, and you'll never get a slice of pizza that you do from a coal oven. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, everything has its place. Yeah, I, I, okay. I'm a big fan of John's Pizza. So John's Pizza is a coal oven, right? No, they're a brick oven. That's, no, no, that's a co- no, it's a brick oven, but it's coal. Gotcha. Coal fired. Gotcha. Okay, there's a difference. When you have a coal, a coal fired pizza, there ain't nothing like that taste. And you see them all lined up, and they chew it on down, and they love it. Take away John's, they'll be they'll be protesting in the streets. You know what I mean? So everything has its every application is different in any way, and it's just another thing. They must have a lot of money in electric cars and fuel cells and all. Because they push it like unbelievable. Uh, Mike, know? thank you. I want to try and grab a couple other people here before we get to the $1,000 minute. Mike in West Virginia is actually a uh, a chef. He's something of an expert on this. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frankie. How's it going, man? I'm hanging in there. All right, good. Listen, so this is my opinion. Uh, electric, right? If you go to any restaurant, right? Matter of fact, you should go to Manhattan. Go to every restaurant. Take a survey. Every restaurant uses gas stoves right because you can control the heat gas on gas off electric you turn it off it's still heating up right so now there's probably a small percentage of restaurants that might use electric but they're just keeping stuff warm but when you go to a restaurant so gas is really the only way to go you know i understand about the ecological impact and stuff but you you won't find a restaurant a good quality restaurant that cooks on gas i'd say 90 percent 99 percent of all restaurants use gas Mike, so you th- should go take a little survey, take a little walk there, Frankie. Well, no, I'm not disputing that, right? I- I'm just no, uh, I know, I th- know, and thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. I uh, what I'm doing is one informing you that gas ovens, or excuse me, gas stoves may soon be a thing of the past. Number two, letting you know about this rebate, which I didn't know about until I started researching this, and three, um, kind of just taking people's temperature on what they prefer and if they can deal, if they had to make the con- the conversion to electricity. Robert's in Long Beach. Hello, Robert. 
Hello, and th- thank you. Great show. Thank you. Um, the electric, the electric stoves are dangerous. I went to one or two parties, um, and individuals, people walk in the kitchen and they set things down on this glass plate that they think it's just a glass plate. It turns out to be the stove. You can't see that red light. Um, they put down a, a newspaper, a piece of paper, or, you know, put their hand down on it to just lean on it and they get burnt. And I went to a, a little dinner uh, banquet and someone put down a placemat and that caught on fire because you can't tell these lecture stoves. Now, if they're going to force us with the gas, I think people like anything will supersede and find a loophole to keep a gas stove somewhere in their house or, you know, the outside on the barbecue or, you know, it's so funny that you said that Robert, because my wife said to me when I was going over this with her, she said, I will get an electric oven when it's impossible for me to get a gas oven on the gas stove on the black market. She says, I don't care if they ban them. I will go on the black market and somehow find a gas stove. So people are very passionate about this. Thank you, Robert. Uh, Finally, before we get to the thousand dollar minute, let me say hello to Steve in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. All right, Big Frank, and uh, could you use the Little Rascals theme song once in a while? I think that would be appropriate for the show. And uh, somebody did correctly say about uh, you probably need an electrician and a carpenter if you converted Uh because you would need 220 available in the house. If 220 is not available in the house, then you'd have to have an electrician do that for you to bring that. That's a lot of money. The carpenter would have to fix up all the damage that's done. And uh, people are more comfortable uh, cooking with gas, but gas is more dangerous. Every once in a while, you do see a house blow up, a building blow up, and usually it's a gas explosion. And quickly, on the Texas shooting, I mean, come on, folks. The guy running out the door is the movies. How do you know this guy isn't going to turn around and spray the place? The guy did the right thing. Listen, you can only kill somebody once. So if the person is shot, they're dead, and you hit him two more times, you can't re-kill somebody, all right? I know it doesn't look good. And Texas, you got to remember something about Texas now. It is starting to go left. These big cities in Texas are starting to go left. So once Texas flips, folks, you could say goodbye to your country. Your children and grandchildren will live in a leftist lunatic country. Think about it before you buy a gas or electric stove. Thank you, Steve. Uh, perhaps it's um, my own funeral here, but uh, let me say hello to E. Frank in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yes, hello, Frank. I've been using gas stoves since I was born. I've always enjoyed gas stoves. They cook very efficiently. The food is better. Uh, and, uh, you know, Kathy uh, Hochul and others want us to convert to clean energy and raising the costs of energy. You know, you, you see these econometers that Con Edison has put in New York City. It's awful. I mean, we have to do what the bidding of other people. Well, if we can't enjoy our own lifestyles and our own understandings. Well, look, I think there's a reason this is so controversial, and it's exactly what you just said. People uh, do feel this is an infringement upon um, their choice, their choice of stove. But And thank you, E. Frank. There was a time when people felt this way about lead paint as well, and when they felt this way about asbestos. Now it's readily accepted that asbestos and lead paint are so harmful that you had to do away with them. And I wonder if um, more research comes out and more people see the potential health hazards of these gas stoves, maybe gas stoves will be looked at as the asbestos of years ago. I don't know. Finally, uh, Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. 
Yes, hi. Um, I'd say that uh, we should still stay with gas. Um, I don't think they came out with any studies in any crazy health uh, um, downsides to gas like they did with asbestos. Well, well, I mean, they're saying it. They're saying asthma, right? They're saying all these cardiovascular issues. Uh, they're saying very. They're saying there's very serious um, health ramifications from from using these gas gas sto- uh, stoves. I mean, I wonder if perhaps uh, it's just that most houses don't have proper ventilation for uh, using gas stoves. Well, that's interesting. Uh, David in uh, the Bronx brought up that that point as well. Maybe that's what they're seeing here. If there's not a proper way to vent these, thank you, Joe. Uh, $1,000 minute straight ahead. Uh, we're going to give an opportunity to the seventh caller to 833-969-4447. New number today, 833-969-4447. If you're the seventh caller, you're going to get to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that, you'll be $1,000 richer. Simple as that. 833-969-4447. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. By the way, if you ever um, if you ever want to know what kind of music we play on this show, you can just join our Facebook group, and we have the uh, each and every morning we put the artists and the titles up there um, in terms of the artists that we're playing. So uh, it's yet another reason to join the Facebook group. So just search on uh, Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. If you go to our Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash Fan. We have uh, an article from Inside Radio quoting our president, the man I'm looking at right now, Chad Lopez, who is uh, talking about the ratings. And apparently, according to this article on Inside Radio, uh, our numbers are up 54% in a year. So if you want to see that story in Inside Radio, you can uh, go to uh, my Facebook page or just search um, Red Apple Audio Network in the Google News search. comes right up. All right. Without further ado, we're going to try and give somebody an opportunity to win some money. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Thank you. And uh, it let us say hello to Joe on Long Island. Hello, Joe. Hi, uh, Frank. Nice, nice to hear you tonight. Well, great. Nice it's to nice to be heard, Joe. Uh, you've heard this segment before, I imagine? Yes, I have. All right, so you know the rules. Yes, I do. All right. Well, what part of Long Island are you from, Joe? I'm uh, from Mineola, Long Island. Mineola. Okay, great. My wife's from Long Island, so you guys are kindred spirits, Okay. 
Um, so, uh, by the way, some of these questions are going to sound super easy. It's not a trick question. If it sounds easy, it is easy. If I ask you what color is George Washington's white horse, it's white. You don't think I'm trying to trick you or anything. Just answer the question as first thing that comes to mind, okay? I'll do the best I can. All right. The timer will begin after we ask the first question. You ready? Yes. Name a car manufacturer. Ford. When did the War of 1812 start? 1812. What is the smallest country in the world? Transylvania. Transylvania, you said? Yes. No, unfortunately. Uh, I'm sorry. No. It's the, <laughs> the it's the Vatican. It's the Vatican. Ah. Now, uh, the, Joe, uh, the reason I pause is Transylvania is not a country. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I mean, they they are very, you know, renowned because Dracula lived there and everything. But Transylvania is in, I think, Romania, I believe. But I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, All is not not lost because we're going to give you a consolation prize, okay? All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Give Kenneth your information. Thank you for listening. By the way, a lot of people have been sharing photos on social media of uh, them wearing their Other Side of Midnight swag. Or uh, showing the hats, showing the mugs, showing the T-shirts. It makes a great gift for a fan. And uh, if you want to get one of those, you can go to WABCRadioStore.com. And you can get my stuff on there. Just search Other Side of Midnight or just search Frank Moreno. There's a great mug with an alien on it. There's a cool uh, shirt with an alien on it. Some great stuff, even without aliens on it. And um, whatever you order, if you use the promo code FRANK15, you actually get a bit of a discount. So you'll save 15%. Uh, So you can go to WABCRadioStore.com. I was at my mom's um, on Christmas, Christmas Day. And you know what she's got hanging up there? She has the movie poster that – I'm not joking. She has the movie poster that our graphics department made where they made our show into kind of a horror movie movie poster – and it's got I, I'm, this has got to be the only house in the United States, probably the world, that has a picture of not just me, but Matt Blaze, Alex Barnard and Kenneth hanging up on a poster with the alien Prometheus. So uh, it's a cool poster. And I think it's still available for sale on there. And if uh, if you're into our show, it's 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 really it is nice looking and the way she has it framed and done up. I couldn't believe she told me she was buying that poster. And I said, Mom, I could probably get you one. She says, no, 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 I don't want any special treatment. I want to buy the poster. So she bought the poster and it's hanging in uh, our room. I can't even get away from these guys even when I'm uh, visiting family. Uh, Want to wish a happy birthday to uh, Victoria Gotti Sr., the widow of John Gotti. And uh, she is going to be my guest on The Racket Report this week. Uh, The Racket Report, if you're new to the show is a special podcast, an original podcast that we do of stuff that's uh, not heard on the radio. So if you want to hear, she very rarely does interviews. And we're going to talk about uh, kind of very sensitive stuff. And um, you can catch that if you subscribe to my podcast, The Racket Report. I'm not talking about the reality show star named Victoria Gotti. I'm talking about her mom, Victoria Gotti Sr., When's the last time you heard an interview with her? I'm guessing it's been a while. 
So uh, that you can catch that. That's going to be posted tomorrow. Just search uh, The Racket Report on iTunes or on uh, any podcast app. So happy birthday to her. She's uh, 81 years old. Uh, nobody can say she's had an, an easy life. Also, uh, Mary J. Blige, it's her birthday today. And uh, it is also the birthday of uh, Alexander Hamilton. You know, uh, bef- I think they made a he did something before they made a musical about him. For the life of me, I can't remember what it was, but I'm I'm sure it was interesting. So uh, happy birthday to everybody that's celebrating a birthday today. And uh, if, you, if you're on that list, you're same week as Elvis, same week as Rush Limbaugh, same week as Kirstie Alley. Isn't that interesting that I I didn't realize this until somebody wrote me yesterday with that Shatner interview. The first two people that I asked Shatner about were Rush Limbaugh and Kirstie Alley. Now, I didn't realize it at the time. Maybe on some subconscious level I did. Those were the first two people I asked him about. And both of them passed away recently, and both of them were born January 12th, 1951. What are the chances of that? That the random two people who didn't know one another, who were, you know, um, in totally different fields, those happen to be the first two people that I ask them about, and they have the exact same birthday, including the same year. I'm telling you, folks, there is something to this issue of synchronicity, which we talk about from time to time. There's really um, there's something that happens to me a lot. All right. If you want to comment on uh, anything we're talking about, you can do so at 833-969-4447. That's 833-969-4447. We are going to do 15 Seconds of Fame in just a bit, where we uh, give you an opportunity to uh, be heard for 15 seconds on uh, a subject of your choosing. Uh, It's 833-969-4447. After the show, I'm going to do a deep dive into this $11 ebook that I purchased from Steve Gutenberg to try and find some stories that he doesn't know that he's already told in printed form and then kind of surprise him with it when we tape our interview uh, later. It is kind of a bummer that I bought the printed version of the book and then I'm not going to get it signed and then I just spent another $11 on the e version of the book. So maybe I can get him to sign it in, in an NFT or something. I don't know. All right. Um, eight eight three three nine six nine four 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 seven. We'll do the uh, the thousand dollar minute. Uh, excuse me, the fifteen seconds of fame in just a bit. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. By the way, uh, speaking of uh, of aliens and UFOs, uh, tomorrow we're going to be joined by Jensen Anderson. Uh, Jensen Anderson is a fascinating, fascinating person. She's an academic. She's not some 
um, it, drunk, delusional uh, hillbilly that uh, that sees uh, visions of things that aren't there. She is. Um, she went to Princeton. She's an alumnus of Princeton, and she just edited a book called "Extraterrestrial Intelligence: Academic and Societal Implications." And you know, it's coming back. Comes back to synchronicity again because I got. Um, I got. I was notified of her. I was made aware of her right after I got that question on Friday from Ask Frank Anything about if I was in charge of onboarding aliens into American society, how I would handle it. So I have to confess, since Friday, I've been thinking nonstop about this, about what the societal implications are or would be of extraterrestrial intelligence. This book has an international group of contributors and it looks at the what they used to call the UFO issue, but now they call the UAP issue, from multiple different vantage points. And so she's going to join me uh, tomorrow uh, to discuss what the societal and um, academic implications are of that. So we got an action-packed show tomorrow. we got uh, Steve Gutenberg. We have uh, Jensine Anderson. And then I'm working on putting together a panel of three former members of Congress, uh, including – some very controversial members of Congress, and we'll talk about what these new rules changes may mean for the future of, uh, you know, the next two years in terms of legislative sausage making and that whole thing. So that's that. All right. uh, Last thing I'll mention on the domestic front, I told you about this, um, you know, this, this giant tree that my neighbor cut down or was struck by lightning or something. And I have this giant block of uh, basically a giant log sitting in my garage. And so um, I tried to chop it with a, an axe. It looked like I used a toothpick to chop this thing. I mean, I, I couldn't chop it, right? I, I'm laboring and laboring and nothing. So then I discover that I have a, um, I have a uh, wood splitter in my garage. must have been from the previous owner. I say, oh, this is all right. Now, these wood splitters, if you've never seen these, they're great. You just put a block of wood in there, and then you get a a sledgehammer or something, and you break up this wood. So yesterday, my wife tells me she's going to Home Depot. I said, this is great. I say to her as she's leaving, hey, can you go and can you pick up a sledgehammer? And she nods. She nods. Now, maybe I should have taken a hint that she didn't affirmatively say yes. But um, I thought that I made clear that she should get a sledgehammer because you need that to go with the wood splitter. So lo and behold, we're text messaging yesterday as she's making her rounds. I said, did you end up getting a sledgehammer? Her response, did you ask me to get a sledgehammer? My response, I said, yes, but it's okay. I'll grab it. Last thing I want to do is have a fight over a sledgehammer. And she says, when exactly did you ask me to get a sledgehammer? And by get, do you mean purchase? And then I tell her my recollection of events. Her response, you definitely didn't get my attention when you asked me to buy a sledgehammer. Had you done so, it would have resulted in a lengthy conversation of why the blank you need a sledgehammer. Don't buy a sledgehammer. It will be yet another tool that sits in the garage unused. It's going to be an interesting couple of days in the Morano household, I'll tell you that. Without further ado, uh, it is time for you to be heard for 15 seconds. 
Uh, 833-969-4447, a new number today, 833-969-4447. And uh, so if you get a busy signal, just call back in 40 seconds uh, because we have fewer lines today on the new number. So just call back if you get a busy signal. 833-969-4447. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Frank, Prince Harry is the Fredo of the royal family. It's a good thing for him that Michael is not in charge. Well said. Can't argue with that. Mike in South Carolina. Tomorrow, Frank. I know I mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. It's great that Carmine's walking. You got to go with your wife and Carmine to Long Beach Boardwalk. 2.2 miles. I had many conversations with Bernie. Rest, rest in peace. And you got to you like uh, seafood. Steve Jordan. Jordan Gloucester Park. We had a 50th reunion there. It's the best. Thank you. Neil. Yeah, Frank. When Carmine gets a little older, instead of teaching him how to eat cheese and smoke teamos, teach him how to nurse. He'll enjoy that well into his old age. Teach him how to nurse, you said? Yes. Nurse. All right. Okay. Hey, thank you. 833-969-4447. Victor. Uh, you know, now that Mayor Adams wants to eradicate the rat population in the city, it's only going to alienate the Chinese community and who are planning to celebrate the Lunar New Year at the year of the year of the rat. Some people are just never satisfied. Norman. Uh, Pete from Staten Island and Jacqueline from Brooklyn are the best callers. All right, John in Freehold. Hey, Frank, I don't know if uh, you never responded to me, but you can get the AI to do uh, the Prophet Muhammad. When it tells you error, you just hit create again, and we'll do it. Cheech in Howard Beach. Shout out to Joey from Ronkonkoma and my paisan, Anthony. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Is the green grass around the other side of Staten Island? Steve in Manhattan. All right, uh... Linda Ronstadt also recorded the song, I Will Always Love You. And I would recommend it if you don't want to have your windows blown out. <laughs> Gary in Rockaway. Yeah, Frank, uh, don't tell any ladies uh, about getting tools. Just get them yourself. That's your uh, the man's job. And um, I played back the rack. I'll see you in Mount Airy in September. Sounds good, Gary. Well, just understand, and, and thank you. I think that's as, as good a note uh, to end it on. Understand, she was already going to the hardware store. I was not asking her to make a special trip, Gary. I mean, it was it was just she was there, right? So she probably passed a dozen sledgehammers while she was at the store. I mean, I was not asking her to go out of her way, just so everybody's clear. All right. Uh, Action Pack show uh, tomorrow. Very excited. We got Steve Gutenberg. We got aliens. We got uh, congressional stuff. We got a lot of interesting stuff uh, coming back next hour. You want to stay in touch with me? You can do so via email frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Whole bunch of people have been writing to me and says, Frank, I love your show. I get up every day and I hear the last 15 minutes. Do you know what you're missing if you only catch up in the last 15 minutes? You missed our discussion of this uh, very interesting discussion of this Mexican this uh, Mexican restaurant shooting and the debate over whether that's self-defense. You missed the discussion of this principle. 
You missed uh, the, uh, the interview with James Zyron. You missed uh, Greg Kelly saying, why would William Shatner ever want Frank Morano anywhere? So the point is, if you're not listening to this show, in its and Chad Lopez was here. That was a nice treat. Um, if you are not listening to this show in its entirety, you're missing out. you got to subscribe to the podcast. Just search The Other Side of Midnight on uh, any podcast app. Hit the subscribe button and leave us a nice five-star review in iTunes. We're now, if you go to the, um, the rankings of this kind of thing uh, on Chartable.com, we are in the top 60 entertainment podcasts in the whole country. The whole country. There's 9 million podcasts out there. A lot of them have something to do with uh, entertainment, and we're in the top 60. So uh, the point is we want to keep growing, and uh, clearly it means we're probably doing something right. So if you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, please be sure to do so. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Just hit the subscribe button and it comes right up. All right. Uh, back tomorrow with uh, Anthony Weiner and a couple of Republican former congressmen to make sure we're keeping him honest. Uh, we got uh, Jensine Anderson on the societal implications of UAPs and the latest on my battle with ants. And uh, who knows, we may even have another Alex Barnard song uh, to bring to your attention as well. So a lot to get to over the course of the next uh, 24 hours. I'm going to go do some cramming for this Steve Gutenberg interview and see if we can find uh, – maybe Sid has a book that I can steal of Steve Gutenberg's, and we'll see how that goes. Big shout-out as well to our friends at the WCBM Morning Show, uh, Sean Casey and Bruce Elliott. Uh, the producer, Kristen, very kind words for what we're doing in Baltimore. And I got to tell you, I've been overwhelmed at the number of folks in Baltimore that have been reaching out to us and uh, offering us, you know, kind of support and feedback. And uh, I think it goes to show, and I hope this is a model for what a lot of other radio networks will consider doing around the country. I think it goes to show that if you have a live program on overnight, people will respond to it. And, it, and rather than just warmed over... Uh, Drek, that was the barren wasteland of the most of terrestrial talk radio. So thank you uh, to Sean and Bob and their producer, Kristen. I'll see you on the radio Thursday. All right. Until tomorrow, Frank Morano, good day. <laughs>